so Mormon discussion was what I started in 2012 by myself. And I just kind of followed what John was doing, but kind of covering the same folks, but trying to be a faithful voice when he had sort of moved out of that. Why do you think nobody can stay in that middle, that middle place? There's the Mormon subreddit and then there's the ex-Mormon subreddit and there's the faithful subreddit. And I always remember resonating with the Mormon subreddit because it was like this middle ground. And it's fascinating because it seems to be a passing through place. It doesn't seem to be a place where people are stable. And I find that interesting. But anyway. It's, It's a great question. I think we all recognize it, right? You point to a truth, which is no one seems to stay in that middle ground. Even the folks who say like, I'm going to stay there. (laughs) I remember a moment where I'm like, I'm going to be here, guys. This is where I'm going to be. You can depend on me. feels like you're sort of put into this, when you say middle ground, you're kind of pulled in two directions. One is your loyalty to this institution that you believe is the kingdom of God on earth. And I think you're pulled to kind of be empathetic while also being loyal and the voices that seem to walk that line don't stay there forever. But there are folks who seem to have been there for a long time. Terrell Givens, Patrick Mason, Fiona Givens, uh, Richard Bushman seem to walk that line pretty well. Welcome, everyone. Uh, you might know my guest here today. Um, it's Bill Real. It's been a year since I started. So I, this actually turned out to be kind of fun because I was like, hey, your anniversary and I'll get Bill on. So we've been we've been excited to have you and the other hosts who have joined in the last year, year and a half. And it's really added a different flavor to what we're doing. So I'm excited that we've got 11 podcasts, I think, 11 different podcasters. And uh, I think you guys are putting out great content. So I'm really proud of, of what's happened in the last year and a half. Yeah, I think it's really cool. I don't feel like I totally fit in with a lot of um, post-Mormon podcasters. And I am always grateful when you say stuff like that. Because I'm like, oh, <laughs> maybe maybe it's okay that I don't perfectly fit in. <laughs> and I kind of like it. You know, when when I left the church... Uh, fair Mormon did all they could to make me kind of disappear from all the things I'd done with them. They just kind of made me vanish from their website. And, uh, you know, the church excommunicated me. And so that kind of made me the black plague. Like it would be difficult to get other folks under this umbrella who are anything but uber critical and to have you and to have Scott Dyer, uh, who I think offers sort of a softer voice as well. Um, I, I, I've always said I would love to have somebody fill the void of what I did 10 years ago and be that really soft introduction to messy issues. And I think in some ways you're facilitating kind of a relational uh, experience with people. And Scott is hitting some of that doctrinal stuff. And the two of you are doing it from such a softer place. Cause I think, I think there's folks who just aren't going to listen to me, but they're giving space for, that softer conversation. And so I think there's usefulness in all these um, various platforms that are, that are under the umbrella doing their own angle of how they tackle this stuff. And I think what you're doing is great things. Yeah. I'm glad I can be the flaxen cord. All right. I like that. (laughs) 
So I thought it'd be fun for you to go over like a summary of your relationship with Latter-day Saint beliefs. I think there's some people that are probably unaware that you were like ever a Mormon bishop, for example, like they would never know what your backstory was. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure they can find it other places, but I thought it'd be fun to just take a few minutes and kind of go through a timeline of Bill Real. So um, I'll go a little bit before I joined the church. When I was 12 years old, I started uh, drinking with my cousin and my best friend. He had an older brother who would get him stuff. And by the time I was 16 years old, um, we could drive into certain carryouts and they would give us alcohol. And when I was 14 years old, I started using uh, cannabis, marijuana at the time. Was, I never knew it under a different name, right? But marijuana. And uh, came from like a blue collar family. They're we're hard workers, party on the weekends, but good people. And, uh, you know, again, alcohol 12, drugs at 14. I joined the LDS church at 17. I meet a, I meet a girl. She, her and I were working at the same place, McDonald's, which is, by the way, the I think it's the number one employer where people work their first job at. So it was uh, it was a job that her and I were both working, and we met each other. And her family were strong Mormons, and she uh, she and her dad, her dad especially, kind of wrapped his arm around me and invited me to go to church with them. And I fell in love with Mormonism. The I remember walking in the door the first time, going to a young a young men's lesson, and they they wrote up on the chalkboard Heavenly Father, Holy Ghost. Uh, Jesus Christ and asked us to kind of separate them into their each one's responsibilities. And there was just some spiritual intuition then where I just felt like it was a message I needed to take seriously. So 17 years old and I get baptized um, right away. I'm thrown into like leadership positions. I was the assistant ward mission leader immediately, which I think was a great calling for a new person, right? Let them work with the missionaries who had just taught them and baptized them. And so I cared about those. Uh, they're pretty much the same age as them, you know, just a little younger. But I, I really cared about them and their work. And it, it helped me take Mormonism seriously. So even leading up to my baptism, I just read tons of things. And eventually uh, became bishop of that same ward when I was 29 years old. Uh, but in the midst of thinking and reading and studying everything about the church, correlated material and non-correlated material, I, I read things that just kind of troubled me. And by the time I'm 32, I'm you know halfway into serving as a bishop, and I've got a, just a full-blown faith crisis where the answers I used to cling to that solved the problems, I now realize that they were flawed too. And... Uh, over the course of, you know, the next from the age of 32 to essentially 42, uh, I was just kind of working my way through all those questions. And most of them led me to believing less in the truth claims of the church. And eventually in 2018, I was excommunicated um, specifically for going after Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's character and um, putting out an episode where I felt like I had demonstrated that he was being dishonest at multiple occasions. And as soon as I put that episode out and I'd had it sitting in the queue for a long time, knew that it would be the one that would get me in trouble. And, and when I published it, I just knew I was ready to go. I was, I, I had, I was just listening to RFM from TBM to RFM where he, John Dillon interviews Radio Free Mormon. And he says he felt like he graduated Mormonism. And, and I, 
that can come off derogatory, but we all shift and move and grow. And some people graduate into a religion. Some people graduate out of it. And for me, I graduated out of it. And, uh, but, but the key thing was that over the last 10 years of it, I was doing a podcast and going through that, that faith journey, that faith crisis and all the messy issues. I was working all that out in real time out loud, uh, to an audience. And uh, so I had this time all in the church, um, all in, and and then just slowly working my way out of being Mormon. And in the meantime, I'm recording tons of material about how messy some of these issues are and trying to help people make sense of it and not feel alone. And it's been, it's been a fun journey from I, people always say, if you go back in time and I'm, I'm one that kind of goes off in facets, Marty. So feel free to stop me and we can go some other place. But um, some people say, if you can go back in time and you could change something, like what would you? And, and when I think about that question, I really wouldn't. I'd go back in time and I'd just find a restaurant that's closed or something that I enjoyed and enjoy a nice meal. And I'd never go visit my younger self because I wouldn't want him to change a, a thing about how he lived out his life. I'm really happy with how this journey has been fun and hard. Mm-hmm. But anyway. So where i became aware of aware of you i listening to a lot of um mormon stories and going through a lot of the older stuff uh and i don't know it was when you were a bishop and you were talking to john delin where yeah. were you on your journey at that point were you already in the middle of your faith crisis because you sounded really faithful in that one yeah or was that what set you off Having that conference, how did you? How were you even aware of John Dillon? Like I didn't know about John yeah. Dillon until after I had basically already had the collapse. <laughs> so yeah, my my job. So if I fa- or if I go back in time, uh, let's go back in time, maybe fifteen years ago, and I'm an all in Mormon, and I've got an MP3 player, and I cannot get enough Mormon stuffs. And and my job, I work for a floor covering company, and I work the sales floor about half the day. But about half the day is spent going out to appointments and measuring houses. And sometimes I get to travel to an island. Um, Sometimes I would go and measure a brand new home, brand new construction. But I had a lot of time to myself in the drive to these homes and sometimes at the homes themselves. And uh, I just always wanted to know everything about Mormonism. I I just, um, that religion won me over. And Every day I'd go home at night or wake up in the morning before work and I would download MP3 files from uh, BYU Speeches website. I would look for podcasts, look for audio books that were free, anything I can get my hands on. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're searching for all there is about Mormonism, sooner or later, you sort of find that rabbit hole. And often for many people, you know, there's a handful of things that that rabbit hole begins with, but at least one of those handful is Mormon stories. And I listened to those early interviews where he interviewed Richard Bushman, yeah. Terrell Givens, um, Claudia Bushman. Um, he has these conversations with faithful Mormons. Brant Gardner was another one. He has these uh, faithful conver- conversations with faithful Mormons, and he's poking at these issues. And I just found the freedom of thought and ideas to be so fresh. Like, I didn't yeah. see that anywhere. And I hear Terrell Givens, you know, suggesting like, if we just make some allowances and I thought, man, like maybe if I make some allowances, this Mormon, this Mormon thing that I'm bumping into 
that his truth claims seem to be really messy. Maybe I can make a way for it to work. And for years I did. But um, when I found Mormon stories was a couple years kind of just ramping up my own faith Christ. And it would have happened whether I listened to him or not, but it probably sped things up a touch because I'm now hearing somebody talk about Book of Mormon translation and seer stones and Joseph Smith's treasure digging and Book of Abraham. And I'm getting to really think deeply about all these things. But he interviews me, uh, I would say 2012, and it's, um, I'm a sitting bishop, I'm in the middle of my faith crisis, and you say like, Bill, you sound so faithful, and it's because I compartmentalize really well. There's a part of my brain that that knows this thing's messy, and that it maybe, and maybe even probably doesn't add up. And again, I want to just say to your audience, I'm speaking from my own lens and perspective. I recognize that other people believe and think differently, but I want to try to convey where I'm at in these moments. And and for me, there's a part of my brain that goes like, it probably doesn't add up. Maybe it does. But there's this other part of me that, but there's other part of me that just loves the church and thinks, thinks even some, even somehow um, it's sort of subconscious and sort of conscious, but there's this idea that I can almost play, pretend with it. And I don't mean that in like a negative, like I'm faking it, but like allowing myself to just believe it, even though there's a part of my brain that says there's something that doesn't feel right. And uh, John, I reached out to John DeLynn because he had just interviewed Brant Gardner and they were talking about the Book of Mormon translation. By the way, just fantastic episodes, those early Mormon stories where he's interviewing scholars I just, I think for folks that are new to this, to go back and listen to those are just amazing conversations. Mm -hmm. But he interviews me as a sitting bishop who's willing to talk because maybe there aren't that many that are willing to to talk to him out loud. And I felt like I had an informed position, even though there were still flaws in my argument. And I just really wanted to present to him a, a faithful view of Mormonism that also didn't ignore the problems and when I got done with that conversation, uh, it struck me how simple a podcast works. Like I just called into Skype with John and we had a conversation. He records it three days later, it's published. So I went out to Walmart, got a cheap $20 Logitech, uh, headset with a mic and started recording. And just as an interesting side note, Brittany Hartley, my co-host for the almost awakened podcast, she reaches out to me like episode four and says, I really like what you're doing. I'm following along. And I thought, oh my goodness, I have somebody listening, you know? <laughs> but yeah, I was I was in the middle of it. Which one was that? Oh, I, the early ones I was talking about uh, grace and the doctrine of Christ. and What was the podcast called? Oh, uh, Mormon Discussion was the original podcast. Oh, okay. So Mormon Discussion was what I started in 2012 by myself. And I just kind of okay. followed what John was doing, but kind of covering the same folks, but trying to be a faithful voice when he had sort of moved out of that. Okay. (laughs) Why do you think nobody can stay in that middle, that middle place? Why is nobody just there? Like, why is it, it seems like there's this path, this trajectory, and it ends a certain way. I remember... I remember uh, it's like sub it's a uh, Reddit. I remember there's the Mormon 
subreddit and then there's the ex-Mormon subreddit and there's the faithful subreddit. And I always remember resonating with the Mormon subreddit because it was like this middle ground. And it's fascinating because it seems to be a passing through place. It doesn't seem to be a place where people are stable. And I find that interesting. But anyway. It's, it's a great question. I think we all recognize it, right? You point to a truth, which is no one seems to stay in that middle ground. Even the folks who say like, I'm going to stay there. <laughs> I remember a moment where I'm like, I'm going to be here, guys. This is where I, I'm going to be. You can depend on me. Um, Rob Terry, who was doing work under the name of Randall Bowen. Um, you don't see much of him out there anymore. It feels like he's sort of burned out being in that space. Um, it, it feels like, it feels like you're sort of put into this, when you say middle ground, you're kind of pulled in two directions. One is your loyalty to this institution that you believe is the kingdom of God on earth, that you believe these outer authorities to be your outer authorities. And, and then you're also dealing with other human beings and their, the, rec the, the beginning of a recognition that they're human just like you and they're being hurt and traumatized by this thing. And that there's a certain level of feeling just deceived by some folks or being lied to. And I think you're pulled to kind of be empathetic while also being loyal. And the voices that seem to walk that line don't stay there forever. But there are folks who seem to have been there for a long time. Terrell Givens, Patrick Mason, Fiona Givens, uh, Richard Bushman seem to walk that line pretty well. Um, but I don't think it's an easy walk. And I, and for me, and I think for a lot of people, you're pulled to start really sitting with other people's trauma and the hurt and trying to essentially honor that and not make excuses for it. Yeah. I wonder, I think about that a lot. I wonder if we're not, it's hard to have, um, a community in that middle space because if you are truly there you're going to say things that bother somebody yeah. Yeah. and we're not really built to not have a group of people that like we're built to be tribal a little bit <laughs> a lot. and so it's, yeah. it's really hard to not be in a tribe so that's another reason that middle ground is i think rough Everything about your biology says to fit in, says to yeah. collaborate, says to help this your tribe survive. And there are so many, a great book by Robert Sapolsky called Behave. And he just goes through all the little human behaviors where you are manipulated by outside stimuli, for instance, to act a certain way in your life. For instance, they said like um, judges... When, when, when somebody is up for parole, the folks who act as judge to decide that the, whether they've had something to eat in the last two hours affects like whether they'll parole somebody by 40% or something. It's oh, insane. Wow. And to recognize like there is so much going on in our brains that just nudge us to do certain things. And one of them certainly is to be tribal and to, to fit in, to, to compromise parts of ourselves so that we can be the group so that we can signal to each other that we're, that we're doing this thing as well as the, the folks next to us. And yeah. and that's genetic. That's, it's biology. That's evolution. It's 200,000 years of, of being a human being. Yeah. 
Uh, I, that's my first episode. I talked a lot about Brene Brown and she talks about belonging while still also um, be, uh, belonging no place in any place. And yeah. um, I, I like that a lot. And then I also like Jordan Peterson talks a lot about um, saying what you think. And, and I like that too. So it's like, at some point you just have to say, this is what I think. And I can't apologize for it because it is what I think. And if I'm wrong, I hope you correct me. Right. I hope, I hope, you know, I hope I can update my beliefs to something a little bit closer to reality. And that actually, that's another question I had was like, do you, are, do you think truth and um, morals is it all relative? Like, or is there something objective about truth and morality? Um, that's one I think a lot of Mormons definitely have an answer for, right? And if you start even playing with that question, ooh, you've got the, gone off the deep end, right? I'm, I'm going to go so. off the deep end then because <laughs> it's, it's all myth. It's all of it, all the way down from the top to the very bottom. It's all myth. It's all symbols and allegory it's all making meaning out of things the example i always use maybe maybe i said this i know we had we had lunch a few weeks back um you know you take gold and silver it's metal in the ground it's just two shiny substances but there's other metals and they're shiny too and for whatever reason we collectively agree across the world we collectively agree to place value on certain metals as being agreed upon like this is what gold is worth this is what silver is worth and then we stick all those metals up and we used to have a, a economic system that was based on those but it's just myth right like it's just elements in the ground that we collectively agree is worth something and then we and then we cut off little shavings of trees and put ink on it in people's faces or an image a myth of someone's face there's george washington and uh, we assign meaning to that paper and it's now based on the metal that's stored away in the building and then at some point we get rid of the metals and now we just have the paper and the paper is agreed upon. And now the paper is gone and now we have a little plastic card and the plastic card represents the paper that's in your account that really isn't there. Uh, because that dollar, if you understand how money works, that dollar is in so many places at one time, but you can't all rush to the bank to get your money. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's why the FDIC is insures it. So we don't all panic when things go south and we all run to our bank and say, I'd like my $10,000. And they don't have it to give to you. And uh, so the gold and silver is gone. Now the paper money has gone. And now we're to a plastic card. And someday we'll get rid of that and put a chip in our hand or whatever. But it's all made up. And we just agree to it. And so, again, to your, to your audience there, I know there are believers and non-believers who listen. But my point of view, again, is going to come from this perspective that I don't believe a, a conscious God is out in the universe directing our lives or intervening on our behalf. And so morals, um, morals, there isn't an arbitrary set of rules that have been given that I believe are divinely given that I would place trust in those as the absolute rules. And I realized that every human being is so unique. Like we're all alien to each other. Like we all look at the outsides of each other and we go like, oh, Bill looks so much different than Marty. And the reality is if we could be inside our heads, it's even way more foreign than the outside of us. And so the way you think about things, the things you value, the ideas that go through your head, the perspective you have, and we human beings invented this thing called language. 
And it's the closest approximation that we can get to where you say something and I hear something, or I say something and you hear something and we understand each other. Because even in that, we're misunderstanding each other all the time. And so morals are designed to have us not offend each other. Like you go do whatever you want to do, but it becomes immoral when you start to do something that jeopardizes the tribe. And so often the things that are taboo or immoral are the things that put the tribe at risk. So for instance, coughing without covering your mouth. If certain acts that you did 100,000 years ago would have put the tribe at more risk, little by little evolution would have taught us to make those things taboo or bad. And so when it comes to things around sexuality, when it comes to things around uh, people using drugs, for instance, or uh, having different belief systems. So now you're in a tribe and you believe one thing and your neighbor believes something else. We are, we're evolutionarily programmed to work together. And uh, so values such as, I guess, morality is, is to me fluid in that every human being wants to be their authentic self. And that's very different than what you want the world to look like and who you want to be. And so all of us are going to bump up against each other. Like your differences in any relationship you have involves you trying to be as much of yourself as you can and your partner or friends or parents or sibling or coworker trying to be as much of them as they can be. And you, you bump into each other. And so morality for me is like, how can we figure out the best ways in which we can be kind to each other and be as much of ourself as we possibly can? And, and that's going to apply differently to every relationship. So I don't like, we need rules. Like we have to have speed limits and you can't steal and we have to have those, but on like the really small scale of like, Hey, I want my outside world to look like this. And you want your outside world to look like that. I think it's a lot messier than just saying like, Oh, God doesn't like this and God doesn't like that. And so you're good and you're bad and you're okay. And you're not, I think it's way more complex than that. And and so I don't have a, a hard litmus test of moralities, but certainly my, th- my two rules are do not cause unnecessary harm to another person and do not cause intentional harm to another person, right? So no trauma, like- no hurt, no damage. Unintentional or intentional? Oh, intentional. Yeah, don't cause intentional harm. Sorry. What was the first one? And and don't cause unnecessary harm or unnecessary trauma. L- let me say it this way. Privilege is the ability of one person to put off having to incur trauma that now another person has to take on. And some trauma is absolutely going to happen. So for instance, just the birth of a child, the mother and the, and the child are going to incur trauma just from the experience. So there's a certain amount of trauma that every one of us can't avoid. It's just mm-hmm. life. It's part of being human. But then there's also an amount of trauma that we can avoid. Like I'm a white, I'm a white male. There are certain ways in which I get to enjoy the privilege of society and not incur certain traumas because someone, because someone else essentially takes those on. And, um, Morality really should seek to allow every person to not be bumped into intentionally, right? Like we can't help but bump into each other, but anytime you're disregarding another's human experience and you're doing things that hurt them, that to me is immoral. Interesting. What if uh, someone 
doesn't see the harm. So it's not intentional, right? Yeah, and that's why there's rules, right? Like we collectively agree on a baseline. <laughs> well, but that baseline changes. We we used yeah. to have it so that like for instance, um young girls could marry grown men. Like we we allowed laws, for instance, uh, I think it was West Virginia or Virginia had a law in the books that you could be 14 years old and get married. And you think yeah. about like why would we have that law? And they decided that it was moral to do whatever they did. And the reality is it, that shouldn't feel right. It feels uncomfortable. That doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And yet there's not enough people raising a voice. And there's certain people in that society who allowed it to be. Meanwhile, there are kids who whose brains haven't formed who are being, it's made being made like, okay, for them to be entered into some marriage with a, with a grown adult man. And, um, right. It just feels like morality is always being decided by the group of people alive in the moment, but it's always fluid and changing. And I think we do better off when we trust kind of like an inner compass about what feels right and what doesn't rather than maybe letting the collective majority do it. But that's the way it works. That's the system we have. So well, it's certainly a balancing game, right? Like, it is. Like, how do you I, how do you support the collective and ensure the individual gets to be them? Right. And there's some trade-off and negotiations for sure. Um, I was thinking about, I heard this somewhere, maybe the analogy is in place or not, but we have five senses. And by using all of those senses, we get a better idea of what's sitting in front of us, right? And then yeah. I think you add another person. You were talking about perspectives and how we're all so different. But I also think that collaboration is how we get closer to understanding reality. Um, and so... Yeah. It's like if I if I have my own five senses, and so if I can see it, if I can hear it, touch it, like that's helping me know that something's real. And then I've got another person also saying, yep, I also can see, touch, feel, taste that thing too. That also helps me know that that's real, um, which is kind of, you know, the scientific method is something similar, right? Like we're trying to make sure, we're trying to understand what's going on around us, um, which science projects we do is based on our goals, right? <clears throat> so I kind of look at morality more as like, what is the goal? Like, where, where are we aiming? Because it's kind of hard to get anywhere as a society if we can't all agree where, what the goal is, what the aim is. So. You can't even get, you can't even get us all to collectively agree the earth is round, right? Like, <laughs> like how do you get, and you could pose anything. You could almost ask any question to a hundred people and somebody's going to hold the minority opinion, right? I think that's healthy for society though. Oh, totally. Cause but I you're... think it's, I think it's when you, I think it's when you all think you know what reality is. I think that's when you get bit in the butt. <laughs> Cause you but it always don't. ends up being a consensus though. <laughs> Right. Like it's always us as a consensus of what is right and what is wrong in any given moment. There's yeah. always pushback from the minority, either the folks who don't like losing the laws they once had or the folks who are pushing for the new laws they don't yet have. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and you're right. Like we all have blind spots and limited perspectives. So the more they, they were saying, like signs of waking up is travel, for instance, being exposed yeah. to different locations. So I go to France or Sweden or Germany 
And I just see an entirely different culture. Reading a good book does it. Mm -hmm. uh, when I read a book like Sapiens uh, from Yuval Harari, yeah. talking to different people. So having friends that are a different color than you, a different gender than you, they all expose blind spots. What about a different like political position than you? Sure. Right. Um, I think you should expose yourself to ideas and ideas that it's easy to spend time in the ideas you believe. Right. Spend time in the ideas that you don't. Um, free marketplace of thoughts is the only way to change our mind. Mm -hmm. it, and hopefully closer to reality. So it's like, why would we care about people changing their mind if we don't think there's some objective best way of thinking or objective, like some outside, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. The, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, great question. The best way of thinking, the best way of thinking in the 1700s, the best way of thinking in the 1900s, the best way of thinking in America, the best way of thinking in Germany. Again, I, I, you're working with people and trying to come up with like, what's the best way? It has to be some sort of consensus, but it also has to allow for someone to push back and say, like, for instance, those laws in West Virginia aren't right. They're not healthy, no, I, right? I'm with you on that. I'm with you as far as not saying if anybody claims that they have the objective truth, I will be very skeptical. But yeah. the goal of reaching it, I think, is what makes life better. Progress. And, and worth living. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, what what is your what are your like positive beliefs now? So you kind of went through the Mormon thing. Where, where do you, where are you at now? I, I, uh, I live in a, a place of kind of awe and wonder with the universe. And that sounds so woo woo, but uh, I do like, I sit and listen to Alan Watts. Um, I listen to things on secular Buddhism. And so what beliefs do I hold? Um, I believe that, I believe that we can do a better job of helping people to feel safer and happier. I think we can do a better job of taking care of the planet, for instance. Um, I don't believe in a conscious being out in the sky, but when people define God, they often uh, water it down or, or, or maybe, maybe um, um, condense it into three things, which is that idea that God is om, uh, omnipresent, right? All present. He's omniscient, all knowing, and he's omnipotent, all powerful. And even in saying that, right, I apply the he to him. But in my world, like I go back 13 point something billion years and I look at when the Big Bang or whatever that was that happened and everything, again, I believe in that. And as everything came out from that moment, that creative energy knows everything that's known. Like we are stardust. We've allowed a lot of the religions of today to teach us that we're separate from everything. We're the humans and everything is under our dominion. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, we were placed here. We came from another, from the pre-existence. We've been placed here to, to do things. And the reality is this planet, this is part of this universe and it, it all kind of just created itself. And, and what I mean by that is that everything that's known in this world came out of that creative moment and that creative energy that's always been expanding. Right. 
And so everything that's known is known by it because, again, we are stardust and we know things and other animals know things and any other life on any other planet knows things. It's all powerful. Anything that's ever been created in this universe was created by that creative energy. It's it's uh, all present. Like everything is that is. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of a Buddhist way of like reapplying a new definition to God. And when when you reduce the ideas to that condensed form of just the creative energy of the universe, then I love it. I can I can sit with that all day. And what it does is it draws me to try to really take in seriously my outer world. So I'll spend a lot of time uh, trying to learn things about how the world works and why we humans do the things we do. So a lot of psychology, a lot of uh, a lot of these this these deep kind of uh, conversations. Again, Alan Watts, I think, is just a, a, a great mind to really experience. He's got a great video on YouTube. Uh, after school is the channel that does it. They put artwork to good, you know, talks out there that people really enjoy. And they did one on his and it was called time, uh, time, ego, and money. Uh, the, the illusion of time, ego, and money. Mm-hmm. And it's just so, I don't know. There's just this getting deep on, uh, on who we are as human beings and how we should treat each other and how to be present and more aware of the moment. And so I'm really just focused on learning about my outer world and learning about my inner world and um, kind of seeing where that takes me. Okay. It's a it's a fluffy answer because I get up every day and I'm I just I want to I want to read a book and I want to listen to a podcast and I want to be creative so I want to work on an episode. Yeah. I just want to feel alive and I want to be good to people and I want I want to make the world a better place. And Anything that gets me to those things, I, you know, I value learning, for instance. I believe that learning and and continued understanding of reality, as you pointed, closer to what it is, I think makes us better people. Yeah. I, I wanna I wanna improve. I wanna get good at things. I a friend of mine just got me a Native American flute in honor uh, honor of my mother. And uh, I wanna learn to play it. And so I've got some lessons downloaded and I need to spend some time and learn how to play a Native American flute. Cause I think learning to do new things is a big part of what makes life feel like it's enjoyable and there's happiness yeah. there. Yeah. So I, I get feelings of like being stuck in autopilot. Right. And so I think a lot of religious practices help curb that a little bit. So I was curious if you had any practices that you either try to do or have been successful at doing mm. where you kind of un- unplugged from, I don't know, just all of the pushes and pulls of the world. Yeah. You know, you got your phone, you got, you get, I don't know, you get someone calling you and you, is there ever a time where you just sit with yourself and listen and figure out is, am I going where I want to go? Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm I'm struggling in this conversation only because I'm I'm so not specific. Like, <laughs> like it's all so I get up every morning, 6 30 to 7 30 in the morning, and I'll go make myself some coffee. And I don't know how to explain it, but coffee is a morning ritual. Yeah. And it is it's a really um it's a really important part of my day that I really deeply enjoy. And I sit in my office, I come into my office and I'm in here all by myself 
and I go through the mundane operations of uh, running the podcast. So for instance, I'll go on to QuickBooks and balance the books each day and I'll check emails and stuff, but I often am just sitting here. And if something comes up, I'm, I'll check out the Drudge Report once a day. And if there's some news story or something being mentioned, or if I heard a conversation yesterday and somebody somebody said something that I thought was interesting, I'll start like researching that. I'll just go plug away and research. And then I'll sit back here in my chair. I'll read something. I'll just sit back in my chair and I'll just sit and think about things. So I don't have like a, I don't have like a concrete meditation practice, but I also feel like I'm sort of meditating all throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I listen to a lot of books. My goal this year is to to read 50 books and I'm about four or five in at this point. I think I'm on pace. And uh, I'll sit and read something and I'll just push stop on the on Audible or on the podcast and I'll sit back and just think for a little bit, spend 10 minutes just taking that idea and running through all the permutations of it and kind of deconstructing the idea and thinking about the logic, like, okay, what's the critics say or what's the other side of this view? Hmm. I, I find that to be really, you know, there's this idea of separating spirituality from religion and I find that practice to be a very spiritual practice. I enjoy playing in my head with ideas and thinking about things. Yeah. Um, I had a thought, oh, so you're reading 50 books. Have you considered reading the Book of Mormon? It came to my head and I was like, Please. I'm going to ask. I almost lost it, but I remember. There was a time in my life, even when I wasn't believing in the church anymore, where I still valued that book as being a spiritual um, ground for for one's mind being open to wrestling with concepts and ideas, mm-hmm. which I think is what scripture is made to do. Sure. It's made to tell us what the rules are, and it's made to get us to think outside of the box as well. Right. It's getting you to conform and it's challenging you to grow at the same time. Yeah. And in 2023, I feel like the list of books that I see as having value to me, worth my time. Yeah. Are are other books than the Book of Mormon. But I certainly remember times in my life where it was on my my list and probably at the top of it. Yeah. Uh, I tried it once. Uh, it didn't go well. It was, I was pretty fresh though. So maybe I should try it again. <laughs> there's, a, there's, we're not really given permission in our, in our religious tribe to pick which parts we like and keep them and not only be able to discard the parts we don't, but to raise a hand and say, I don't like this. So yeah. for example, the idea that, you know, the, uh, was it the Lamanite daughters when they were kidnapped, they were raped and the Lamanite men took or the, took their virtue, right? Mm. And this idea that one can be sexually assaulted and lose their purity or lose their virtue. Mm. And it's a horrible idea in the Book of Mormon. And you can see that when the church accidentally put it in the young women's material a few years back, they may, they pulled it. And the Salt Lake Tribune and Deseret News, I think, did an article on it. But there's not really a space in church where there's encouragement to go like, hey, we're reading this right now. I just want to be clear. Whatever's being taught here is truth. Is My intuition says it's the opposite of that. Hmm. And um, I think in a healthy system, you have to be able to challenge all of it. 
Like nothing can be so sacred that it can't be discussed. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's interesting. I've, I've thought about that and I think I understand that. And I think I probably lean more to agreeing with you, but I also understand there's the, the counter argument. It's like, well, we don't, that's not the point. That's not what we're doing here. We're here building each other up. And I think there's a lot of criticism in the world. A lot of, it's so easy to tear stuff down. It really is. Like you, you picture your, your um, eight-year-old just builds this really cool tower and the four-year-old comes in and just knocks it down. So easy to knock it down. It's a lot harder to build stuff. And so I can, um, I can understand the idea of like, hey, we're at church. We're here building stuff up right now. Um, but the problem with the church stuff is that there's really nowhere to criticize it, right? <laughs> Maybe in your house, if you have like cool family members that are not uncomfortable with that. Um, yeah. maybe you find a cool group that meets after church, which I found out about happens all the time, right? That you have the people that are willing to have conversations, but, um, I, I can understand having a place where you're, you're building stuff up, you're encouraging each other, but at the same time, not ever having a place where you can talk about stuff is, is, um, it's not right. Like, um, I, I just listened to a clip <laughs> and I, it was something along the lines, if you don't listen to stuff that you're critical, like that's the, the criticism, you're just building your foundation. It's a house of cards. And it's so true. <laughs> like, that's why people have such a hard crash. It's because they didn't have, they had a house of cards of a belief. That's why it collapses so easy. So anyways, the, when you say like, look, there's these folks over here and they're building things and we shouldn't just walk in and, and knock it down. To some extent, I agree with you, but two caveats to that is sometimes the things that are being built are just increasing shame and trauma in the world. So for instance, the idea of teaching females that if they're sexually assaulted, they lose their virtue mm -hmm. seems like an important moment to draw a line and say like, hey, something's not healthy here. Mm. And, and the other thing is, I don't think you have to walk in and knock the building down. I think you can go in build it and you can invite everybody to take a closer look at parts of the building and you can say like look yeah. we built we built a theology on this we've changed a lot of things over 200 years is it mm -hmm. possible does your inner gut tell you that maybe we're off on this too and yeah. and you're creating space where people go like oh am i allowed to trust my inner intuition over the outer authorities who impose that when there's a when there's a choice to be made between the Holy Ghost inside me and, um, and and that other person as a leader, the nudge is always like, as long as you think what the leader thinks, you're on the right path. But we really, if we want human beings to grow, we really have to be able to nudge folks into sitting with their inner intuition and trusting something going on inside of them at the expense of not siding with the voices that they've been taught all their life to be loyal to no that's a that's a tough nut to crack because i i can understand the idea of hey we all need to agree on something that binds us together but the problem is is when you are criticizing the thing that binds you together it it fragments stuff and so then you don't have a togetherness anymore and so 
I don't think it's as easy as just saying they need to just let people be able to say whatever they want about all church stuff anywhere, anytime. Cause yeah, it shouldn't then, be a free for all. Right. Then you're not going to even have a group to hold together anymore. It's just, right. It's just fragmented and individual. It's like, cause nobody believes the exact same thing. No. And so by having agreed upon, Hey, this is the dogma. This is the, the dogma. The, yeah. The thing that holds us together. Yeah. It, there's a reason they protect it, and it's and it's not it's not nefarious necessarily. Um, I mean, anything about our culture is like a cult. <laughs> so it's there's different levels, right? There's a there's different levels, but I don't know. You you make a good point. Like to have a hundred people in a room and you just say like, hey, we're all going to pledge allegiance to this flag, right? Yeah. And for all hundred people, it means something slightly different. And so again, language is the way we sort of understand each other. So we make a collective agreement to, and a, and a wise person once said this to me, he said, because he was a, he, he, this person had serious doubts about the church, but they continued to go. And my question and my friend's question was like, why, why do you continue to go? And he says, first, like I, I join with these people and we collectively hallucinate. And not like, you know, using mushrooms or something and hallucinate, right. but like we collectively agree to something that's not exactly the way any one of us would like it to be. Hmm. So I think there is an awareness, even among all the Orthodox Mormons, I think yeah. there's an awareness that you're all, we're all picking and choosing. And so, yeah, you can't have a free for all because in reality, it is a hundred different people with a hundred different belief systems and life experience but we do have to work with each other. We do have to collaborate. We human beings do need each other on some level in groups or tribes or social structures. Yeah. And, and so we do have to make a collective agreement to behave to each other. Right. So I you can't tear it all down. You can't just knock the house down. Well, I think religion at its best is doing that. It's uh, a place to gain wisdom rub shoulders with people that want the best for you and help align you to a direction that's good for you. And with all its flaws, like, I mean, with all its flaws, I, I understand that. <laughs> Brent Hart Hartley says all this, yeah. you know, in terms, I don't, I don't feel as strongly this way as she does, but she goes, Bill, you got to slow down. Like religion is the tool that passes technology on that we need. It gives us certain rituals that point us to looking at the outer world um, whether it's certain uh, astronomy things like, hey, this mm -hmm. is the day we're going to focus on the moon and think about the the power of the moon or whatever, you know? Right. Like religion turns us to places we wouldn't normally turn. And it it does so in a way that is benefiting us individually and, and it does specifically benefit us as tribal structures trying to perpetuate ourselves. Right. So we got to be really careful not just you know, not just go like, oh, religion's all bad, get rid of it. Like we have to start really looking at that bathwater and finding the babies there and figuring out what new technology is going to pass those ideas along. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Um, we have not even scratched the surface. I love it. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. Um, how much time do you have? Yeah, keep going. We're doing great. Okay. Let's turn this a little bit because I think there are things, well, there's things that I want to figure out 
and there are things that I think you'll hear from practicing Latter-day Saints all the time. And so that's hopefully I'm going to get into the spirit of what they would wish to ask you if they were in a room with you. Please. Um, I like, why can't you just leave the church alone? And I understand that that's a trope, but, and I know the answers, right? Like I actually do, but anyway, let's start getting into that. And then I'm, and then, and then we can have that discussion. Why don't I leave the church alone? Yeah. Why do you care anymore? Yeah. Just move Um, on. Yeah. So (laughs) every day. So first off, Mormonism is the thing that I spent the 10,000 hours becoming the expert in. Right. This is the thing I'm good at. I've read all the books before before you even were on the other side of it. Correct. This is the thing, right? Like, like there are people in this world that are really good at things. Hmm. And, And they say the amount of time any one person has to put in to be a to be competent in their field is 10,000 hours, right? Mm-hmm. And when it comes to Mormonism, I've done that. I've done 10,000 hours, probably times a few. And um, so one, it's the thing that I that I know. It's the thing that I have useful knowledge in my head that other people don't, that my perspective seems to be helpful to, right? Just from an information standpoint, from a knowledge standpoint. And then to sit and help people deconstruct this thing, every day I'm getting messages from folks who say, you're really helping me. Like I, I heard it from you in a way that I couldn't hear it from anybody else. And I think we all do that. We all have certain voices. Um, for me, it's like Jack Cornfield, Miguel Ruiz, or Brene Brown, for instance. If I mm-hmm. listen to those three folks, I just get what they're saying. And so to have every day folks messaging and saying, hey, Bill, like what you're doing is super helpful. I want to thank you. I just had a listener come visit me today. They came to my home and she sat in our house and talked to me and my wife for maybe two hours. And she was just deeply grateful. So not only is this the thing that I know well, and not only do I think what I do is extremely helpful to folks, or at least folks tell me that it is. And then and then number three, um, I enjoy... I enjoy this. This is this is an enjoyable space to be in. Like I like helping people. It's this is enjoyable. Mm-hmm. So to get up and work on an episode for Mormonism Live where I have to dive back into Mormonism, I find Mormonism really interesting. I like it from a scholarly standpoint. And to yeah. share that information with other people and to give them some sort of freedom inside to live their life out differently. I really like that. I like that people get a whole array of information and get to make brand new choices today that they didn't get to make yesterday. Yeah. That, that reminds me of something uh, Jared Higdon said, who is um, ex Morgan from my spiritual life's husband. Um, He said something along the lines of it's just how you shouldn't feel too guilty about like diving into the deep hole of Mormonism. You just happen to like leave one of the most fascinating religions. (laughs) Like it is really interesting. Right. And, and that's the so other thing. There is that. That's the other thing, which is I've spent my life living this. Like yeah. in or out of the church, I'm Mormon. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right? Like if there's a group of people. I still say we, we when I'm talking about the church a lot. I do that all the time. <laughs> if I walked into a room of 10,000 people and they were separated into groups and one group was talking Mormonism, forget for the church or against it, just talking mm-hmm. generally about it, that's where I'm going to gravitate. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that's the story I lived. That's, that was my life. I joined this thing when I was 17 years old. 
and I was all in for whatever it was, a decade and a half. Yeah. Um, I took it seriously. It's, it's the language I learned. It's how I grew to understand how the world works. This is a space I'm comfortable in. Sure. No, and um, I guess, do you think that um, leaders of the church also get letters from people saying how grateful they are that yeah. they do what they do? Yeah. Absolutely. So that that in itself isn't like a good enough reason to do something, right? Because I think mm, I don't know. I think well, this is this I this is my mindset. I've had a few people say, "Oh, I'm I'm really glad you're doing this," which I appreciate it because I appreciate it. Um, I've heard Jordan Peterson say stuff like this too, where he says, "If you have that many people's attention, then obviously you're seeing something right," or something along those lines. And I just don't know about that. I don't. I feel like sometimes you can tell people things that's not good for them and they will tell you, thank you that you can mm. create things for people that is not good for them. And they will tell you, thank you. I mean, you could give someone that is a drug addict, a drug, and they will say, thank you. And I'm not sure that alone for me is not a good enough reason to keep doing something. Um, uh, does that make sense? Like it totally makes sense. Um, there are folks that again deconstructing your religious identity. You know, if you're all in on Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Scientology, right? Uh -huh. And I'm using those high demand ones because there's such a there's intertwining with your identity sure. in those. Yeah, there's a part of you know deconstructing that that you really do enter the stages of grief. You really are going through those yes. stages almost in that order every time. And uh, there are folks who just want the next thing. Like today, Mormon Stories releases this episode and they talk about that topic. And now Mormonism Live talks about this one and Mormon Discussion puts out one. And um, and folks just kind of follow the next piece. Like they just can't get enough of it. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's a part of a faith crisis. There's a stage there where people really... They just really want to get as much information as possible and they're trying to figure it out, but they really thrive on getting the next piece mm -hmm. and they seem sort of stuck there. Right. And eventually they move on. I think, I think most people do, but some folks tend to stay there for a while. I remember staying there for a while. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely don't think it's entirely healthy to be stuck in that spot. Mm. Um, so some folks tend to just get stuck there and they're thanking the content creators for constantly creating the next thing. But at the same time, I think most people are genuinely benefiting. I, again, I've had so many interactions with folks. I did a survey in Southern Utah here where I said, you know, to the XMO group, it was the post-Mormon Southern Utah support community, which is a group on Facebook. And I, I put a survey there and I said, you know, I want you to really sit with, whether you're happy or not, you know, are you happier than when you were a believing Mormon? Are you less happy? Are you the same? <clears throat> and it, it, like 90 something percent, 92% or something said they were as happy or happier. And then the easy thing for you and I to do is go, do we trust that? Like mm -hmm. if somebody's gotten out of this thing, are they manipulated in a way to promote their self as being happier and better off than they actually are? And the moment you think that thought, you also recognize the other side of the coin is true, that the believer often 
is wanting to intimate because they want to share the gospel, right? So you want your neighbor to think you're happier than you are. Mm -hmm. You want your, you want the people that you are being an example of, of being a good Mormon. Right. You want those folks to see your best side. And so sometimes you're also shading the questions to be happier than you are. So on one hand, I see that, but on the other hand, everybody's story is sacred and it's not my business to determine whether someone's happy or not, that if they tell me they're happier, I'm going to trust that whether they're on the believing side or not, mm-hmm. that I, the moment I begin to assume that I know their life better than they do, I'm probably crossing a line. Sure. Um, that's, that's true. I think ultimately I put the responsibility more on the individual than the content creator. As far as if somebody's watching something that is not good for them, mostly because let's just say for argument's sake, Bill Rill, John DeLynn, uh, who are all the uh, big ones, uh, the ones that are getting, um, yeah, like Peter Bleakley, Car- you've got Cara the Burrell, what, yeah. name, name all of the ones that have a lot of attention, the ones that are getting a lot of views. I truly believe that if um, th- you all didn't exist, someone else would, because there are people wanting to watch it and therefore it will, it will be created. I, I kind of yeah. feel the same way about politics. I feel like you can get mad at the different talking heads for riling people up. But I think it's really created in the hearts of the people, what they want to watch. And I really do think, I wish people would be more wise and intentional about what they're watching so that they aren't being just pushed in a way where people don't care. Right. I don't know. It's the whole reason we went to doing the Almost Awakened pod. It's, you know, when, when I started that podcast with uh, my previous co-host, Mikel, mm-hmm. back in whatever it was, 2018, 2017, maybe, my whole goal and her whole goal is to create something for people to move on from Mormonism to, like give sure. them some tools. Not that the Almost Awakened was the landing spot, but it was another vehicle to go like, hey, I like here's some tools. second half of life conversations. Mm-hmm. Here's some second half of life tools. Go figure out where you where where you best operate and go thrive. You know, right? And yeah, uh, yeah. there was a there was a moment um, in that debate with uh, where Quaku asked um, Radio Free Mormon, like, "What are you? You're you're tearing this down, but you're not giving anything to offer." And that question actually didn't land very well with me. I think that was one of the stronger Mormon moments. His answer wasn't bad. He basically said, well, I'm not going to tell people what to believe. They can believe what they want to believe. But I think it dismissed the importance of having a orienting belief structure because I, I do think that people get disoriented. And so we were talking about like, Okay, people, 90% said I'm the same or happier, right? And I think anytime you're selling something over, it's going to be a disappointment for people. And I think, I think ex-Mormons could talk a little bit more about how hard it is because <laughs> it is really hard to lose your orienting, like, belief system. That is, like, no small joke. Like, it is probably one of the hardest things 
I've gone through. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not to say that I would take it back. It's just like when you're in church and it's like, I went through this really, really hard trial and I wouldn't take it back because of all the things I learned from it. And that's how yeah. I consider this. But I, I don't, it's not like it's a cakewalk and it's not like, no. I, I think, um, I think it can be really dangerous for people too. Um, so anyway, that was, but, me. but I, but I think time, <laughs> well, I, I think time does something. So there, you know, the, the part of the faith crisis where you just figure out things aren't what you were told. Yeah. And, and you take whatever time, a month, six months, three years, whatever it is to really wrestle with that, try to make it work, you know, learn new things the the relationship turmoil that it sometimes causes in a marriage or causes between uh, a child and parents, adult child and parents, uh, siblings, you know, there's a moment in that deconstruction where everything's falling apart and you feel lost and, and none of it feels easy or like, it's like, like you said, it's the hardest thing. I, I told somebody a couple weeks ago, that losing my faith was harder than losing my mother. My mother died of cancer at 59 years old, three or four years ago, three years ago. And uh, that was hard, but losing my, losing Mormonism, deconstructing all of that and, and stepping away was harder than that. Mm -hmm. But as time goes on, I think we enter stages. Like as we process it more, as we figure out how to move on in life, most of these folks that were answering that survey, I think they had years and years between when they left and when they're answering the, the survey question. Now there are people waking up just today about how messy these issues are and, and they're going to find themselves in that dark night of the soul, which is horrific. Mm -hmm. But once some time I think gets between you and it, I, I don't know. I, I think things smooth out again, life's life. People are going to get cancer. People are going to lose jobs things are going to go south, things will happen. But I think the further they get away from having been members of the church, they make some peace with it and their life seems to be, again, based on their answers, seems to be genuinely better. Yeah. Um, you know, I said the same thing. I had this conversation with John Verbeke when I interviewed him and I said something similar with time helping and he said, time if... And he was saying people who can get stuck in their grief yeah. and time helps if, and then I can't, I can't quite remember what he said. Um, but he basically said, it's like, you have, you have like this, this hole. And when you're looking at it, it's like this, it's like takes up your whole vision. And as you move away from it and look at it from away from it, it gets to be like this thing that you can look through and it, it, it can be, I don't know, it can help you in your life instead of um, being this huge hole in your life. But um, I still meet people who say, even as we're generalizing that people report being happier, again, you say that in a large enough crowd, there will always be somebody who goes, just FYI, I'm not, I'm mm -hmm. not happier. Sure. Because even that, yeah, there's that 10%, right? And so they wish they were they wish they could go back in time and not know what they know and, and put the toothpaste back in the tube and pretend again. 
Well, that actually brings like the, the, I remember for a while there, I just heard a lot of choose to believe, choose to believe. You you don't get to choose your beliefs. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. People don't get that. Like that's a, that's a trope we say, right? When we're trying to help people in a faith crisis, like just choose to have faith. Yeah. But it, if I boil it down to like something outside the church, if I go, for instance, Marty, I want you to choose to believe in unicorns. (laughs) I want you to choose to believe in leprechauns. And you couldn't because your brain tells you that whatever data evidence you've got in your head, it is not rational to believe that there are unicorns or leprechauns. And what the believer doesn't understand is that an ex-Mormon like me is to the point where I know so much about the mess of Mormonism that it's a thousand issues and it's no longer rational for me to believe in it, Mormonism being true would be like there is leprechauns. Now, again, it doesn't mean kind objective of. truth that Mormonism is true or not true. That that can be debated inside the heads of anyone. Right. But kind my of. head tells me it's irrational. Yes. Um, I just want to rewind back to like the beginning. And you were talking about how there's part of you that wishes you could just still participate. Right. And I do think you can choose to participate. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you can choose to believe, but you can choose to participate. And I do think that a lot of people, when they come to that fork in the road and they go, do I stay or do I go? They're seriously thinking about whether they stay or they go. Some people do stay. And I think that's not necessarily a bad choice. And I would also add only like individuals can figure that out. What that answer is. Um, there was something else. I, don't don't you also don't you also think there's consternation inside about if I let go of this this rope if I let go I'm, if I'm if I'm tethered to to the rope of Mormonism and I just let it go that now I got to figure out oh my goodness who am I what's what's going to happen to my life how is this going to live itself out and we human beings have a lot of fear about the unknown. Sure. We have a lot of fear and trepidation about the, the unknown feels so unsafe. It feels so scary that I think a lot of folks stay in a space of like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to stay here. And again, this isn't everybody. Cause I think what you just said is true too, but I think there's also a segment of people who stay stuck. don't have, they don't have enough evidence yet to know that things will go well if they, if they untether themselves. I feel like that's not a very good place to be either to not move forward. Like, I think if you're going to stay, stay, if you're going to leave, leave. I think being in that stuck state um, is not. Hence nobody stays in that middle ground, huh? Well, I don't know. I think, well, I think that that that's a little different. I feel like that you have to be intentional to stay in a space like that. Um, Like Terrell Givens or Patrick Mason. Yeah. I think, I don't think they're stuck. I think they're intentionally there. Um, there's, There's a difference. Uh, yeah, their think, motive isn't, I don't think their motive is fear, as I'm saying, no. but I'm just saying that you were just talking about like there's, you yes. got to go one way or the other. And well, it just relates I mean, to the earlier question. Well, and they've chose to stay, but yeah. I don't feel like they're stuck. Does that no, make no, sense? No. Yeah, so I don't like either. I felt stuck for probably, um, probably three years leading up to me actually talking to mm-hmm. my husband about having doubts. And it wasn't even, I, church still had complete loyalty. Like they had my loyalty. I just, felt stuck in life. I, I was updating some beliefs and it wasn't driving well. Like I kind of lost my belief in the supernatural, but I still had hope that 
the church's supernatural stuff really happened. Like there was that one time it was really important for it to happen. So it did like, I still had hope, but it was anyways, it's hard to explain. No, no, I I totally get it. I I think what really, what it is, is there was probably a part of me that didn't agree. Like, I really don't know that I have a one me. Like, I think there's lots of different parts of me and I don't know that they were all on the same page. (laughs) So I remember being stuck too. And little by little, like I started drinking coffee and I did it in secret at first. Cause I'm like, I, if, in case this, you know, in case I decide that I'm not going to leave the church, I'm going to have to give this back up and I don't want to deal with that or whatever. Right. So this is by the time I'm inactive, but the last two years or so in the church, I was, I wasn't going anymore. And I said, I'm going to drink coffee. I uh, started drinking adult beverages once in a while, having an alcoholic beverage. And it's so scary. So you're you're trying to maintain, like, I want to leave room in case I want to go back. But I don't think these are sin the way the church teaches. I don't really think the church is true. I don't, I have really, I'm really having a struggle with these truth claims. Mm-hmm. But I want to, I want to try things. I want to see if this is part of a better life for me. And so this fear of not wanting to mess up, I think most of us start to tiptoe and lean out a little bit and try new things. And we start to figure out like, Oh, carefully, I don't need this religious identity to control every way in which I live my life. And I think the more you test those waters, I think most people can handle those things responsibly. You know, I don't think coffee is a big deal. I don't think having a tea is a big deal. And, And so people tend to handle their lives relatively responsibly. And I think that gives them the safety and the peace to now untether, you know, so they start to lean into being their authentic self and they find that to be a more enjoyable life. And they little by little let go of the church. And some people read the CES letter and the next day they resign and right. They never look back. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like different. Yeah. It's definitely slightly, there's some variance, right? Mm -hmm. There's a pattern for sure, but there's definitely some variance. Um, going back to just how vulnerable people are. So, okay. I've heard the criticism, um, that you and others are profiting off of the distress of those people going through that really tough time. Like, do you ever worry about that? Is that something like, I don't know. So I started the non, so I started the first podcast back in 2012. It became a nonprofit in 2014. Been doing this essentially 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, last year the nonprofit raised $340,000 mm-hmm. and, uh, you, you go like, oh, that's, that's a ton of money, you know? And it is certainly is, but when we look at, we've got, I don't know what it is, 1500 donators. And I think on average it's a hundred bucks. And we got one donor who donates a significant amount, thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, huge supporter of, of our work. And then most of the other donors are donating 20 bucks a year or something, you know, mm. and and they feel like they get value. They feel like not only are we helping them or have helped them. Some folks are donating today because we helped them five years ago. Right. But the folks who are donating feel like we're helping them. And they also think it's important that there are voices who are intelligently criticizing this religion so that the next wave of people who wake up tomorrow Mm -hmm. 
will have access to this sort of information, right? Mm-hmm. And and you're, it really does cost something to do this. You not only do you have all the normal kinds of overhead, but you have content creators who, if they're really good, you'll be lucky if they don't get some sort of financial um, benefit. You'll be lucky if they can go three, four, five years producing content without burning out and just throwing in the towel and walking away. So if you want folks who articulate ideas around Mormonism that are helpful to you and to the next wave of people, and you don't want those folks to burn out, then you have to essentially compensate them, right? Right. So as a nonprofit, uh, what we do is we want to create good, high-quality content that gives people the information and tools to be able to make new choices, having a more well-rounded information about the system that they're in. And and so am I profiting off folks to some extent? Sure. Um, you know, in 2012, we lost money. 2013, we I think we made just a little bit. Year after year, the nonprofit has grown. Um, we certainly bring money in, but I, I think for the, what people are paying, again, 20 bucks a year, 50 bucks a year, 100 bucks a year, and the value that they say they're getting, I, I don't know that there's another way to do it. I mean, look at look at the podcasts that didn't do as well financially. Look at, um, again, I don't know what, like Gina Colvin or Dan Witherspoon or whatever, but you look at all the smaller podcasts that were out there on Mormonism over the last 10 years. Most of them last six months, a year. Some of them have five episodes and they quit mm-hmm. because it's hard. Like you, you know this, it's hard to record <laughs> something and then to edit it and then to promote it and then to think of the next idea and then to get it on paper and record it and edit it and promote it. You're, you'll burn out eventually. I, I told you this at lunch a couple of weeks ago, you know, it, Very possible. nobody, nobody does this for 10 years in this space and without being paid something. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want this good quality content from good quality content creators, long run, again, anybody can do it for a year, long run, you have to find a way to keep those folks from being burned out and to be excited about what they're doing. So yeah, I mean, we're a nonprofit. We operate on donations. We certainly bring in money. Is it priestcraft? Like, man, is it any more priestcraft than the, say the, Say the Red Cross. The Red Cross goes out and does things that obviously are much more in tune with like human needs and suffering than what we're doing. Yeah. But really it's, you're taking money in and you're using that money to provide tools that help people. Yeah. It's the same concept. There's certainly a parallel that could be made if you're, if we claim sure. the church, it. When when do the missionaries come in? When people are in a vulnerable state, right? And then that's yeah. when they that's when they get them. Um, that's a criticism of the church. And there's certainly some parallels that can be made. But while you were talking, I thought of this. I had never thought of it before. Um, I, I don't see people regretting donating to Mormon stories or to Mormon discussions. Um, I. Uh, I think that is probably, I mean, certainly at some point people go, you know, I think I'm done with this. Maybe they have a change of heart and don't think it's even worth supporting anymore. And so they shut it off. But I don't know that they would, because that, that was my mindset when I've made donations. It's like, I, I'm i consuming this. I should give something back, right? Since I'm consuming it. Um, so. The audio is whether, free, right? Like, 
I'm not attaching. I, right. I'm saying salvation. I'm saying the donations yeah. have come in because you know I felt like I got something of value, right? I got something that I was consuming and using. That's what I'm saying, though, is that folks aren't being told that their salvation is connected to whether they pay or not. <laughs> they can't, right? You can't no, it, we, we say, look. If you, um, right, yeah, sure. And, totally. and we're up Big front. Different. We say, hey, we would like, don't, we're a nonprofit. We'd like donations so that we can compensate our podcasters so that we can keep the this quality content creation going. Yeah, yeah. And folks go, I want that. So yeah. I'm going to send 20 bucks in. And I want it to go to where will you go? Or I want it to go to Mormonism live yeah. because they want to see Mormonism live, continue to produce content into the future. So, and so it feels, it feels, it feels like a genuine interaction where you're not making anybody do anything and the content's free if they don't want to give. That's right. That's they right. can still listen. Yep. It, it'd be like if you could go to the temple, whether you paid tithing or not. Right. Um, <laughs> which is, Right, not the case. So, um, okay, that's a good segue. I really do wonder, <laughs> does does the stuff that you're most proud of get bring in the most donations? Or is it the tribal Ooh. stuff that brings in the most donations? Yeah, so let's start here. I think the most important thing happening under our umbrella is Alan and Katie Mount in Marriage on a Tightrope. Because I think that is really rubber meets the road Two people who love each other and their marriage is at risk because they are holding different places in this religious paradigm. And, and they tend to bring in so much less than podcasts like Radio Free Mormon or Mormonism Live or Mormon Discussion. And um, I'm bothered by it. Right. Like I'm happy for the ones that do well, but marriage on a tightrope seems like it really does benefit people at that really ground level. Um, so in terms of like what stuff gets the most attention and whether that stuff's the most useful or helpful, I don't, I don't know that it always is but people get the right to enjoy what they enjoy and they get the right to give to what they give to. Right. And that's, that's the, that's the way it works. Well, do you ever worry about audience capture? Cause that's kind of related, right? So if the thing that is giving you the money and you keep feeding that thing, even if it's not a good thing, mm. like, is that, um, should we fight against that? as content creators and say, you know what, I am going to do what is wise, not what is gratifying right now. Like what's going to help the world down yeah. the road, not just what's going to help me right now. Yeah. I don't, I don't make decisions based on what I think will get the most donations or what will get the most attention. Um, Maybe not consciously. Right. Like, I mean, <laughs> I'm certainly making I, I, a catchy title on a promo image, right? Like I certainly yeah. want to manipulate a, a strong word, but I do want to nudge people into going like, oh, I think I should check that out when I maybe was on the fence whether I was going to or not. Well, there's certainly titles. Uh, this is a little bit of a tangent. There's titles that you click on and you're like, this is not what you clickbaited me into. Mm. But there are others that are clickbaity, but you're glad you clicked on it, right? Like it's close enough. Yeah. That it's not like false advertising. I know what you mean there. Yeah. 
but that's not quite no it's not quite it that what i'm gonna let you go back i've lost my train of thought no, that's okay you you asked like which work am i most proud of and is it is it the stuff that gets the most attention um almost awakened brought in i think seven or eight thousand dollars last year mm-hmm. and it brought in 200 bucks the year before um a big part of that is Britt hartley coming on board and and what she adds to that podcast but i've only listened to a few and i really i like the direction that you guys go a lot um yeah yeah i'm so really that, proud of that like i really enjoy that content i i hope to be able to continue to create that uh, that work regardless of how well it does. It isn't right. listened to at near the number that Mormonism Live is listened to or Radio Free Mormon is listened to. And uh, But it's the work that I feel like most would benefit people after they've done this deconstruction stuff to build a healthy life after. Mm-hmm. And it's not the stuff that's most watched, but I spend as much time preparing that episode as I do preparing a Mormonism live episode mm-hmm. because I value it the same okay, or, I remember or more where I was going there. I've come back. It's come. So, so, so did you, okay. Subconsciously, I think things drive us. There's different things that drive us. Right. Yeah. And I often wonder, okay, if if one of the 12 apostles or one of the 15 had a faith crisis, would they even be able to, would that ever make it to their conscious awareness to, that they needed to step away? Like, I don't even, with, with all of the pieces pushing them to believe, I don't know that they even have the ability to do that. And I wouldn't even necessarily blame them or say that they have some kind of bad character even. It's just nearly impossible. And so, and that makes me wonder, like, okay, if your if your income is all coming in from this, mm. like, what what if you need to correct and you can't correct because of all of the factors that go into it? Does that has that crossed your mind ever, or is this the first time? <laughs> no, 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 it, no, no. The question certainly is, you know, if there ever is a moment where this isn't the best place to spend my time or energy, or I'm not benefiting others like do i have the gumption to be able to step away from it Mm -hmm. and i've I've not really spent much time thinking that question out only because there have been times where i've been burned out like i thought i ran out of ideas or Mm. um it was taking again i was working a full-time job back in ohio for a floor covering store and then i was working the podcast essentially as a second full-time job but not really getting paid to do it, right? So I'm putting in 40 hours there. I'm putting 40 hours in my work. And it just became so much. It I just was exhausted. And, you know, to be burned out from all of this stuff, there were moments where I was ready to walk away, but not because I didn't think it was helpful anymore. And, and so I'm at a point where I really feel energized. Um, I I keep a document now of like future episode ideas. It's a Google sheets. So it's up on the cloud. Hopefully it never, the cloud always <laughs> exists. Right. Right. Um, we think things like that, right? Oh, the cloud is forever. Well, let's go, let's fast forward a thousand years. And I don't think Google drive is existing. Yeah. But I've, I now keep a list of like ideas as they come into my head and I've got a hundred for Mormonism live. Mm-hmm. 
And I think as long as there's something to be said that's useful, again, I, I guess my point is that I haven't really thought your question through because I don't, I feel like I'm years and years and years away from having to, to think that out. Huh. And the fact that I now do get paid, that we have a board of directors and, and they give me a salary, it, it now works to the point where like, yeah, like that pays the bills as you pointed out. Um, but it gives me the ability to not be so stressed working two jobs. I now get to sit here and run the nonprofit, the administrative side of things mm -hmm. that takes its own time and energy. It's its own problem solving. And then I've got these shows every week that I do that I sit and produce content for. And whether it's, you know, when Britt Hartley does an almost awakened episode, she'll pick the topic, but she'll send me two or three podcasts to listen to, or, Hey, Bill, read this book before we have this conversation with this person. And so there's a lot of time spent getting ready for this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I look at it I'm, and I really feel like I've got 10 more years in this easy before I feel like I don't have something left to say. And I think when that time comes, then I'll have to sit with that question. Like, do I walk away? But then you have to say, like, what do you do? Like, you're right. Like, do what do you do then? Do you do you invite someone else to come in and and run this thing or do you just let it dissolve and take that money and give it to some other charity that does good in the world? Mm -hmm. But I think as long as we're producing content that we feel is helpful, that question just kind of sits on the back burner. Yeah. Uh, okay. Similar, similar note. Um, you know, you were saying that you're like an expert in Mormonism. Why not create, Ryan, why not create a podcast that is like for profit then and just say, hey, you know what? We talk about Mormonism, the good, the bad, the ugly, instead of just mostly the ugly. Did you know what I mean? Like, why not make it just a place where people can still come and learn about all the things, but maybe in a less, uh, I, I keep the tribal keeps on coming to the word because I can't help but feel like there's like a flip that happens and all of a sudden, you, like you're, resisting ex-Mormon subreddit, right? You're like, oh man, those guys are such assholes. And then all of a sudden you're like, man, they're not assholes. They're great. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so and then something flips and then, and then you're, you're like kind of, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, instead of feeding, feeding that, like, why not try to like, uh, produce all of it? Like a whole, I guess you kind of are by not, you're not exactly doing it right, but you're allowing a lot under the umbrella to do it. So it's there, which I love that you're supporting that. But um, anyway, sorry. Don't you? Don't you? No, no. I love it. Don't, don't you think though when you when you pretend to articulate a position that really isn't your true ground? Yeah. Isn't that really not only uncomfortable but unpleasant? Yes, but I would say that a lot of times I kind of hold both positions at the same time. Like I sometimes I have like the skeptic point of view that's always yeah. fighting what I kind of feel like I do believe. Like there's always that good argument on the other side that I'm like, you know what? They have a good point. I can at least bring that to light. You know, like I can say, you know, does that make sense? Like, um, I would say that's how, that's how it works for me anyway. It's a lot easier when those, when I'm not quite decided to do that, and then I can genuinely do that. I'm not just pretending. Yeah, pretending's not cool. <laughs> and I'm to a point where to articulate the positives about Mormonism would be for me ignoring the elephant in the room. 
and, and well, so you, I don't you wouldn't I even can't. have to do it. You wouldn't even have to only do the positive, right? Yeah, but I I think the uh I think the harm and trauma being given to people in the form of unhealthy boundaries in the form of sexual repression, for instance, in the form of uh, infantilizing uh, adults so that they stay at, you know, a 10 year old level forever and learn the same, that changing isn't really seen as growth. It's seen as some sort of deviation from one's loyalty or testimony. Mm -hmm. Um, I see so much negative things being handed out that I don't want to spend any time acknowledging Mormonism is like, Oh, it's also a good thing. Like I, I, I don't have that space in me anymore. Like, yes, there are good things that happen there. There are benefits to people or to groups of people like a family. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there's so many things that aren't healthy and the leadership doesn't want to acknowledge it that I feel my time is best spent shining a light on that. And I, I wouldn't feel, I wouldn't feel good about sharing the good and framing it in any way that says like, Hey, like there's a lot of good there. Maybe you should stay. Hmm. Not that I need people to leave, but I don't, I, I, until we, until the negative is really acknowledged, right. Until that side of folks get to go like, Hey, not only are we going to say we've made a few mistakes and leave it be. We're going to tell you that these are the mistakes we've made and we're going to, we're going to acknowledge that we've done some wrong and we're going to commit to you that we're going to try to be better people and to get it, to get it more right. And until there's that kind of forthrightness, it feels inappropriate to acknowledge the good in a way that you make it safe for people to dismiss the unhealthiness that's there. You, you would stop if what? I would stop podcasting. Um, man, that's a big question. I would stop podcasting, number one, if, if all the things that I think do need to be said or put into the record are said. And I don't think it's I don't done know yet. What, that means, I guess. what it means is that they're, they're um, let's see if I can come up with a, an example of an episode. Um, we did an episode, I think it was RFM who did the episode a few years ago because we're always finding new things. So, one of the episodes RFM mm-hmm. did was um, the early uh, journal of uh, let's see here. So, in 2021, RFM does a podcast. I think we did something on Mormonism Live, and I think he did something on his own. And we talked about Joseph Knight Sr.'s uh, journals. And there's um, missing pages at the front of it. And we suspect that there is an additional First Vision account, for instance. Mm. And so I think Mormonism is full of all this history, and there are still things uncovered. And I really do believe that, again, you can't ever get to a point where all the information is available. But I, I would like to suggests that when people are examining the truth claims of Mormonism, that they have access to all the information that is at that moment available. And in as much as there are new things to talk about, 
or things being discovered or points of view that are enlightening to folks as they're wrestling with this stuff. I think as long as there's something to be said that fills in voids that we don't know, just as you earlier said, like, oh, I value, I value learning and I want to, I want to progress and I want to, I want to get better at, you know, doing this thing. Um, I, I think this is part of that puzzle for folks who are trying to reconcile Mormonism. I think more information is good. I, I think there's been limited information in the past. And I think that has debilitated uh, a human being's ability to navigate that in a balanced, fair way. <coughs> so I'd so say is, is perfection, that's when you'll stop? No. Um, if there are obvious places to still communicate about, to talk about issues, to, to kind of work out like what's the logic of this or what's the rational of that, or what's the, what's the repercussions of our theology here or there. I think as long as there's interesting things to be said, somebody's going to be saying them. And I really enjoy being one of the people who does that. So I think I would have to feel like I don't have anything new to add. You don't. Yeah. Right. Do you think that's a perspective thing though? Like if you have the perspective you have, you will always be able to find something and it's not really. No, I've gone, I've gone months. Reality. I've, I've, there was one year just before RFM joined us, just before Alan and Katie Mount joined us, mm-hmm. where I had gone about a year producing almost nothing, 10 episodes or something for the whole year. And I was really That's at a point where I was, and I was really weighing, do I just stop doing this? Hmm. So I think not having something to say is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my health is a big part of that, right? If I was ever at a point where my health took a real serious turn for the worse and for whatever reasons, the time needed to do the research or the ability to talk into a microphone, lose your voice, for instance, right? Your vocal cords get damaged or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, that would be a problem for you. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the face is no big deal. I've got a face made for radio, so to record audio is it's not oh, a problem. But, uh, you know, health is a big deal. Uh, I think I think we'll always be helping people. So I, I have a hard time believing there'll be a day where emails don't come in and people aren't grateful. Mm-hmm. You know, as I get older, I may not, um, there may be a generation of human beings I don't appeal to because I'm 75 years old or whatever, right? So maybe the audience number goes significantly down as I age and, yeah, you know, but I, I think as long as, um, as long as I can do this and it is uh, feasible, and there's something to say and that people are being helped, I I would like to be in this space. Um, yeah. Part of it's donations too, right? If, if, if we hit a recession, which we're sort of kind of are in, mm-hmm. in uh, the last quarter of the year last year, we saw donations start to go down a little bit. We had a better year than the year before, but donations in the last quarter were down a touch. And, you know, if we hit a depression, then people are going to cut, their donations. I mean, that'd be the first place people would go like, Hey, sure. I've got to make sure there's food in the table. And so if there isn't funds here to pay the content creators, myself being one of them, then you're right back to the beginning phase of going like, Oh, there's no financial benefit. And I'm burned out. I've done this for five years. I've done this for 10 years. I don't, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. Yeah. Um. So there's those kinds of factors, but I don't, I don't really see, I don't really see me stepping away as long as I'm healthy and as long as I feel like there's something of value that I still have to say. Well, that 
also makes me wonder too, you were talking about health. Um, do you ever feel like doing this all the time makes you stuck here? Like, you know, you were talking about how people move on. They stay for a while and they probably move on. They probably is not healthy for them to like listen to this content forever. But what about you? Like, is it healthy for you to create this content for the, for so long, I guess. I've got some, I've got some non-member friends and we had just gotten to know them. And I said, Hey, why don't you come out to a, come out with us to visit with our friends every month. Our larger friend group puts together a, like on the third Friday of every month, we call it the outer darkness drinking club. (laughs) And we go to uh, a particular bar here in St. George. It's a old firehouse turned into a bar. And the bar has like three different levels in the, in the middle, cool. in the middle, the middle of the three uh, levels of the building is like all these nice, comfortable leather couches. And, and so we'll get all of our friends in there and be 15 of us, 20 of us, 25 of us sitting in there, just kind of just talking. And so these new friends of ours that were never Mormon, they said, I said, Hey, would you guys like to go to this? And they said, Oh, I don't know who's going to be there. And I said, well, it's a bunch of ex Mormons. And they said, Hmm. And I said, watch this. I'll make you, I'll make you a, I'll make you a promise. I said, we'll go. They're all ex-Mormons, but I have a hunch that Mormonism won't be mentioned one time. And so I took them along and we, you know, we were there for two, three hours, fun, fun time. And Mormonism wasn't brought up once. And by that, what I mean is whenever we meet somebody new in this space, Southern Utah, almost certainly the question of whether you're LDS, whether you were, all that comes up. And ex-Mormons do have this kind of initial trauma bonding over that journey, over that experience. It's a way to go like, oh, like you're, you're like me. Here's how we're the same. But within, within a evening or two, that person, once they, they're hanging around that same group of people, they quickly transition to talking about other things. And so when we get together every every month with our friends, Mormonism might be a giggle or a chuckle here or there as we're communicating something we remember about how things were. But almost Some all the con- note, right? <laughs> right, but almost all the conversation is like what are you watching? What are you reading? What are you thinking about? What are you wrestling with? What's the challenges in your life? What's going really well? Um I don't feel like Mormonism is the thing that occupies my daily life it does it does well it does (laughs) but yes but the administrative side i don't really have to think about mormonism much as i'm doing that right and and so and when i do the almost awakened podcast i don't really have to think about mormonism it it really is mormonism live or every once in a while i'll come up with an idea to put another mormon discussion episode out like the one i did recently on tithing where i tried to help people see the doctrine had changed over time Uh And, and I'll get in that headspace for that. But the moment I step away from my computer, like I'm reading, I'm reading a book that has nothing to do with Mormonism. I'm a podcast junkie. I yeah. read a ton of books and none of the podcasts I listen to are Mormon. Uh-huh. I don't listen to my stuff. I don't listen to any of the rest of the umbrella stuff other than a minute here or a minute there. If somebody points me to something important that they're covering. So now because, people understand why you let me on. <laughs> just kidding. No, I, I, no. The, so first I, off, not just you, but everybody in the umbrella, the comments you guys get are phenomenal. Like people seem to really enjoy the content you guys are creating. Mormonism is not my private life, but it is a part of my week. And I seem to connect with it when I need to. 
do the work. And then when I step away, I go back to doing things that have nothing to do with Mormonism. Yeah, that's, uh, that's cool. I like how you're, I, I've noticed the same thing. Uh, we've made some friends too. And I, I do think there's actually maybe a problem with that initial like trauma bonding. And you do have to find something else in common in order to kind of like move past that. Cause I don't, I think that makes you stay stuck sometimes too, if that's all you can talk about ever. Right. Yeah. Um, but we've made friends and create like our friends are really good at creating a place for other people to come that are fresh and they're willing to like do that. They're really awesome. Um, right. Tell me your Mormon story. It's the first time I've met you. Right. Um, and, but then we, we do things other than that setting and it's, it's just nice to, it's nice to have some friends that are also not in, I, I've, I still have a lot of friends that are practicing Latter-day Saints and it is still nice to have some that are kind of on the same page as you. <laughs> so I don't know. I enjoy having lots of different types of friends. Um, yeah. The diversity but, of that, right? Like people who have different life experiences and you get to kind of learn from that and they invite you to, to experience humanity differently. Cause that's their experience. It's different right. than yours. Right. Well, I think one last question, it's kind of, we're talking about friends anyway. And I, one of the things I like to focus on and talk about a lot is relationships. Like how have your relationships been with any family or like you're a convert. So I don't know if you have any family that are even latter, like practicing Latter-day Saints, but um, do you have, how have your relationships been? Are they um, any, anyway, do you have any yeah. tips? So I'm a convert, as you pointed out, as I've said earlier in the show, my mother's passed away. My father is still alive, doing well. I've got a brother. We're four years apart, but I have just one brother. I've got aunts and uncles and cousins that I feel emotionally close to, that I feel connection with. Um, while I was in the church, those relationships struggled more. Oh, I was, my being Mormon, I don't know, it made me distanced from my non-member family. Well, okay. Um, did you have, do you have tips for when the relationships were good during that time? Like I, I'm more interested just relationships across like difference divides period. So if like, it's because you were a Mormon and they weren't like, were there things that helped or was it just that it didn't go well and you just accepted that or it, it was because I was in, I was in this religion and my goal is to present this religion so well and to, you know, to try to figure out how do I, um, there's a certain bit of Mormonism that gets you to think you're better than everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. You've got the truth. You've got the one true church. You've got the path to heaven. You're going to end up in the celestial kingdom with your family. Feel bad when other so there's a little bit of, and it's sort of subconscious, but there's a little bit of either judgment that causes some of that distance. And I think that, you know, if you've got folks who are very different than you and your interest in life are not what their interests are, it's sometimes more difficult to connect. And when my family's all, you know, drinking on the weekends and I'm the good Mormon, being in those spaces, you know, again, the appearance of evil, like we're almost taught 
to leave some distance between us and the ones we love who don't follow the rules with us. Sure. And, and so as I left the church, um, my relationships with my in-laws became more strained and my relationships with my non-member family, my, my, my side of the family became much healthier. And so I went back to Ohio when my mom passed away and part of that whole experience. And when that was done, the funeral was over. We all got together, my, my side of the family and all my aunts and uncles, my dad is one of eight kids and all of his, all of his siblings live in the same town pretty much. They're all within a half hour of each other and they, they still hang out quite a bit. And I'm sitting there in this kind of grieving, but celebration of my mom's life. And it's all my dad's side of the family. And the, the men and the women had equal value. Their point of view had equal value in the conversations. Right. And, um, and the in-laws and the biological children. So my dad and all of his siblings and then their spouses, like the spouses and the children of the family had equal value in their voices. And so there were ways in which I came back to my family and said like, oh, like all of these thoughts that I was better than them because I had the one true religion, I had been blind to the fact that they were actually doing human pretty well. Mm-hmm. And and then with my in-laws, like, I'm sure I said things the wrong way. Like I was, I was deconstructing our tribe, theirs and mine. I was deconstructing our tribe out loud to everyone, right? Like I'm essentially putting my point of view out every week on a podcast and people in my ward and my in-laws knew I was doing that. And it hurt them that this thing they love is the thing that I'm speaking out against every week. Mm. And so I'm just noting that it's interesting that on the front end, as a believer, certain relationships were strained and certain relationships did really well. And then on the outside, when you deconstructed and, and I stepped away, that there that that kind of switched. And to recognize like relationships take so much to make them work, like it takes two sides that really want to put time, energy and value in and hear each other and make space for each other. And I think sometimes when your beliefs are very different than someone else, that is, that's, it becomes an additional difficulty to make that work smoothly. Yeah. So I I was going to say advice. I don't know that I have any, like be good to people and make space for people to be them, but you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to align with anyone. Like you get to be you. Sure. Yeah. I I wouldn't, suggest to anybody that they make sure that every relationship in their life always works hundred percent of the time forever. Cause that's maybe not what they want, but and, and it's fine to take this. a break, right? Can't you take well, a break from a relationship or even sever a relationship if someone cannot maintain healthy boundaries? Well, and I would also say that like boundaries can change too. So you might need to set up a boundary now, later you grow a little bit and you can handle a little bit more. And so then the boundary comes down, like very true. Yeah, things change, whatever. I wouldn't, worry about making a mistake because I think that it's okay to make mistakes and then figure out, Oh, maybe I didn't really want to do that. Uh, Hey, never mind. You know, like, right. Uh, yeah. Trying to trial and error is a good thing. I, I do think though, um, if you're interested in maintaining a relationship, you said something there where it takes two people. And I, I really like, 
a book called Feeling Good by David Burns, and he makes the case that it only takes one person. Um, if I mean, assuming you want to have the relationship with the other person, there's obviously something there that you want. They're obviously a, somewhat of a good person, um, but it's a really, really good book. I accidentally read it because I was actually looking for Feeling Good, uh, which is a more popular book that he wrote, but he also wrote this other one and it was there, so I just decided to read it. And he makes the case that uh, if you're interested, there are things that you can do. And I've implemented a lot of those tools. And what I found is that those, it's reciprocated almost all the time. So, it, and I love that the reason I love the book is because it gave you power over your situation. It's like, if you want this relationship, it, it gave you the control to do it and it didn't leave you leave you just at the whim of the other person or at the whim of, I mean, you have to, hmm, how do you word it? Some of the stuff is hard because you have to look in the mirror and it's like, even if you feel like 90% of the problem is theirs and 10% is yours, like fixing that 10% kind of sucks sometimes. <laughs> so yeah. um, anyway, I, I really like that book. I like the idea that because uh, there was a podcast they did a one of my episodes is a lot about this book uh, it's a a presentation I did for the Good Book Club and I uh, was listening to a, a podcast that he did during that someone was asking him questions and the interviewer that was asking the author questions said hey what if what if they really are an asshole <laughs> and. I mean, if you don't want to have the relationship, that's one thing, right? And that's okay. That's that's one of the answers. Like, if you don't want it, that's okay. But if you do want it, yeah, there's things you can do. And if – so, for instance, if somebody wants to only be in space with you if they have more privilege uh, – in, in the space, for instance, I've, I've had family members who still want me to be judged by their Mormon rules and they want to be able to out loud say things about whether I'm a good person or not based on whether I'm doing Mormonism anymore. Right. Hmm. And I don't want to be in that space. I don't want to deal with that sort of discrepancy of privilege where I have to sit quiet, but you get to tell folks that I'm an apostate or I, I don't get to tell my state, my story, but mm. you get to tell yours. Right. And so I certainly want to just value people who make decisions to step away from relationships because they're unhealthy because sure. they, because they don't feel like they're beneficial to the degree of whatever harm or hurt or uh, unnecessary discomfort you've got to feel. And again, we should all be okay getting a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes in relationships, when one side is deconstructing and stepping away from the church or doing some other hard thing or living their life very differently than their family would like them to live it, I think there are times where it is, and I don't want to, I don't want to use the word uh, and create meaning, maybe word it, I'm going too strong, but toxic, right? Where a relationship, somebody you love, but it isn't it isn't healthy for you to be in that close connection with them. 
And I think sure. people have a right to set boundaries and to step away from that. So I, I agree with you that we ought to put maybe more effort in at times than we do and that we shouldn't just write people off because it's hard or uncomfortable. And I also want to respect the other segment of people who really need the space to set boundaries and to put distance between them and the people they love because there's such a discrepancy of privilege that it, it it's just hurting too much. Sure. And, um, sure each individual thing is is um its own case by case thing and people have to figure that out for themselves but i guess i just want to encourage people to be resilient too like um yeah. and just and it's okay if you're going through a lot to i'm not i'm not trying to say that like i don't know i just i realized in a lot of my relationships that maybe i was creating the toxicity you know like and it's okay to recognize that. And if you're getting, <laughs> I, I've, I've told this story a lot already, um, but there's times where you just, I think um, as we leave, we want to prove that we were being the perfect Mormon and the, the collapse of beliefs still mm. happened to us. Yeah. And we just want to prove ourselves. And I think that's what causes a lot of the problem is like a lot of times it's the, the person that left that brings up a lot of stuff and um, totally i did that a bunch of times it. yeah and it's not even that that's wrong um but you have to remember like from their perspective if you're being toxic to them they're not going to be around or want to really be around you either and them getting defensive makes sense <laughs> so so i don't know and and also, sometimes people are so quick to throw away those relationships, and I can't help but feeling like that's like that's like a cult thing, to like say, "Hey, it's okay. You don't need your family." It's like, no, you might need your family actually. And so, think long and hard if you're going to put a barrier between you and your your immediate family. Like, I, you can, you can't you can make new friends, but you can't make a new mom or dad, right? Like I've said that before, but um, I'm not saying that just because it's your mom and dad there are actual toxic relationships and that's a sticky subject, but uh, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like in the ex Mormon space, people casually throw those relationships away too easy. Maybe that's yeah. just me being judgmental and I'm wrong. I could be wrong. No, 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 no. I've, I, you know, I've had interactions <clears throat> with um, in-laws where I am vomiting all of this problem, right? All this, the, all the problems of Mormonism and I'm doing it in such a way that, I'm probably screaming for someone that I love and care about to just say, Hey, Bill, you're not crazy. This information is real and it is problematic. And I value the time and energy and um, the wherewithal you spent to try to make sense of it. Hmm. But what they, but what they hear when I'm typing that email out, what they hear when they read it is, I need you, I need you to know this church isn't true and you should leave and whatever, you know, whatever that message is. Sure. And so it does, again, we're using language and we're trying to be understood and there's always misunderstanding. It, you're right. Like they're taking a different message, at least in part than what's intended. And to some degree, especially in that dark night of the soul, there's part of you that wants justification to see that, Hey, like I sent this to 10 people and they all left the church too. Right. Like you want some vindication or validation that what you did 
was real. Yep. Um, and, and again, I just think relationships are hard. And when two sides are so different on a really important thing, like it's really important to me that you hear me that I don't believe this anymore. And I don't think it's true. And the other side is I need you to hear me. It's really important to me that this thing is true to me. And this is where my time and energy is best spent for me. Mm-hmm. And that, that conflict that those two people arriving with such different beliefs, there's going to be no choice but to really bump into each other if both people are adamant that either a we i want to be able to say my piece or i need us both to be quiet or one of us gets to talk and the other one doesn't all those kinds of dynamics will play out so right you show up for thanksgiving and your parents have this expectation that even though you're an adult you're still my kid and so you don't get to talk about the things that are on your mind because you're different but I get to still tell you my church things, right? I still get to tell you about the talk I gave in church or the calling I did. I see what you're saying, for sure. Yeah, and I think when people feel, when they feel like their story isn't valued and that the other story is being imposed on them, some folks will not feel safe to have that kind of relationship. For sure. I think sometimes, I've been surprised though, sometimes I will say something that um, is going to, someone on a fly on the wall or whatever watching the conversation it would make make it obvious like it's something that's important to me it's like oh that that's not a member of the church and i think sometimes we don't allow ourselves to say things but we'd be surprised if we did say them if that makes sense like we're not willing to rock the boat and then sometimes we test the waters and and sometimes i think i think you'll be pleasantly surprised i guess and it's just something you have to test i guess but I don't know. I'm just thinking I'm at a place right now with my family. Um, they know where I'm at. They even know I have this podcast and I've shared it with all of them and none of them will watch it. But sometimes I, I walked in on my dad watching an episode once. Mm. It was the Jacob Hansen one. And he said that I didn't let Jacob Hansen talk enough. <laughs> he said I cut him off. But it's just funny because I've heard um, the opposite from other uh other ex-Mormons that yeah. watch that is like, oh my gosh, he cut you off so much. And so it's interesting. It's we all hear what who you, who you know, you bias tells you more. <laughs> the other thing too is people are have personality differences. I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram. Yeah. You were but talking on the Enneagram, about that. I haven't yeah, done people, it. They have like nine different categories of personality that you are separated into, right? You answer some questions and they decide somewhere between a one and a nine what what personality traits you have. Uh-huh. And and I'm an eight. I'm a justice warrior, right? So if I see some injustice or something unfair or, or the marginalized person's being picked on, I'm just, I'm abrasive and I'm in your face. Huh. And other people are, and that's an eight, and other people are a nine or a peacemaker. And they want to make sure that everybody's happy, everybody's good, everybody's content. And so the way we all value different things will deeply impact how we come to a conversation, how we come to a relationship. Sure. And if you value justice and the other person values uh, being a peacemaker and another person values, um, I, I don't know, like, like, someone wants to try new things and another person wants to stay at home and be safe all the time, right? Like those kinds of value differences will also create their own conflict, both between like, if we say like, here's the right way human beings should handle this situation, going back to the morality question. Yeah. Maybe there's not one way. 
there isn't because if you value different things, there's no way you would see the conversation or the path to handle it the same. Yeah. But there are definitely conversation tools, relationship tools that some work better than others. <laughs> totally. And some and, and some tools worked on the first half of life and they don't anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess what I was getting at is like, I feel like I can bring up some tough topics. It's just, it can't be every time. Like, so uh, David Osler, when he wrote his book, and I think he pulled it from somewhere else, he was talking about like a one to five ratio. So like, and I, 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 you have, sometimes you don't even see your family that often. And so if you're only seeing like once a month, maybe like, you know, once every six months or so, you can throw them a curveball and it won't hurt. I don't think it hurts your relationship when it's that that rate, you know? So right. anyways, but yeah, like I was saying, they all know that I'm doing what I'm doing. And my parents were nice enough to watch our kids when um, we were down in St. George and we were able to come see you. Uh, and when I got back, I, I just brutally honest with them. I was like, Oh, I was just talking to my boss, uh, Bill real. And I, I could just, I knew it made him uncomfortable. <laughs> Cause they're familiar with who I am and what I do. Well, they're familiar just because, um, my, they'll watch, they'll watch a lot of stuff. Um, especially my dad. In fact, I remember when I was still faithful, I walked in on my dad watching some anti-Mormon video. I'm like, what are you doing, dad? My dad's always been willing to like, uh, do stuff like that. Like, I don't know. Explore uh, the issues. Yeah. But I, it, it's interesting. The house I grew up in wasn't what I became <laughs> in, in through seminary and institute. Like I, I feel like I became more orthodox through the training that I got from the church than from my home. My home was, uh, I don't know. My dad's pretty open-minded. I like my dad a lot. I learn a lot from him, but uh, yeah. Anyways. It was a good conversation. So, and it's like way longer than I thought it was going to be. And we still didn't quite get everything, but I think we did. We did get to most of it. So in one way or another. So this is fun. If I could say anything, just because you do tend to get people on both sides. And I think you do a really good job of creating sort of balance. Even if not in one conversation, you balance it with a different conversation. Sure. That hits it from a different angle and allows for the other side to have uh, its side considered. It just strikes me that, you know, folks on both sides listening, if I could say anything, it would be that every human is having a genuine human experience. And it's easy when people don't like the thing you think is beautiful to dismiss them on both sides. I think, I think mm -hmm. ex-Mormons dismiss believers and I think believers dismiss those who've lost their belief. And, and the reality is, and I think this has been your goal, and I think it's beautiful, but to help everybody recognize like their human experience is honest. It's not that Bill Real is an evil supervillain who behind the scenes is just, you know, so excited to to work with Satan and try to get people out of the church. It's that Bill Real had a human experience where he read and he thought about a lot of things, and some of those things couldn't the more he looked at him, the more they couldn't make sense in his head and that his integrity dis, you know, imposed that he had to let go of those beliefs and had to deal with his reality closer to what it was for him. Mm -hmm. And he, and he couldn't pretend to believe and he couldn't choose to believe not that the church is true or not true mm -hmm. only that it, it, in his you know, inside my own head, I couldn't make it work anymore. 
And, and to honor that, like if somebody stays and they're sure the church is true, you got to respect that that's their human experience. And for those who believe and your friend is left to recognize, like they didn't just take an easy way out. It was a hard thing. And using the labels that our system taught us of telling somebody that they lacked faith or they didn't read scriptures enough, or they didn't say enough prayers. They didn't go to the temple enough. Like we have a whole laundry list of what they should have done. And the reality is if we just honor their experience as being genuine and that they arrived at what was the most rational conclusion for their brain. Mm-hmm. And, and if both sides can kind of respect each other that way, at least the conversations I think will be healthier and more respectful and allow for more perspectives to be shared. And I don't think that's ever bad. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, sometimes I don't know what the goal of my uh, podcast is. It kind of is just what I'm interested in. But um, I do think it's a le- maybe slightly legitimate to ask someone, hey, where are you going to go if you leave the church? Um, I mean, I I played that clip of, I think it's Elder Ballard, that said that in his conference talk in yeah. a slight way of mocking him, right? Yeah. But because it, it sounds terrible. <laughs> but when it really comes down to it, I think people do have to figure out where they're going to go. Cause I mean, when that takes up so much of your life, you have to figure out what to fill that with and there's probably better or worse ways. And it is interesting to figure that out. What are people doing? So there's that aspect of it. And then I also do think, um, yeah, things are pretty tribal around this topic and I'm more interested in the conversations where people can figure out where to talk in the middle. That's more just to me, that's more interesting. There's not that much of it going on. And so there's not, that's, that's my, it's goal, gotten worse. I guess. It it's has. gotten worse, right? Like um, there's, there's no current, like, you know, you were talking about John Dillon's earlier stuff. There's not that now going on. No, it feels like the believers, because I think the, I think the critics are still willing to have those conversations, right? The people who have left, I'm more than willing to have uh, Fiona Givens or Patrick Mason on the podcast. I, I don't think that goes both directions, but I think well, Patrick the Patrick Mason did come on recently. Yeah, to, it's a John Delin, I mm-hmm. think, and did a conversation recently on there. But he hadn't engaged in a while, right? Like it was it was almost like he was going like I'll try this again. Yeah, and. Yeah. And to recognize that I think the I think we all benefit when both sides sit down and talk amicably about the disagreement. Right. Oh, sorry, I was trying to cut this off, but now I have another question. Do you think Please. John DeLynn's moved, or do you think the Givens and Bushmans of the Mormon world have become more more uh, reserved on what's the word? Put barriers up. I, I think critics, again, see this, I'm, I'm very jaded or, or biased. So my answer is going to be maybe even kind of bump into a believer's answer. But my answer is that when these conversations occur, I feel like on some level Mormonism loses. And what I mean by that is that if we sit and have a conversation, honestly, but if, if me and Terrell Givens sit down and we have a 10 hour conversation and I and, and the critic is getting better at asking the logical questions to get it into the spot of the issue where the crux really is. Mm-hmm. 
And I think if me and Terrell sit down and we talk for six hours and we're, and I'm really allowed to kind of poke it, hit the logic of his answers. I feel like what ends up happening is, and, and Terrell will do fine, but the, the current Mormonism as constituted will get a black eye. Hmm. Does that make sense? And so I, I think I understand those, what you're saying. I don't so know if I, I agree. Those, but, yeah. yeah and, and, and by all means disagree. I, I think that, the believers who are intelligently informed recognize that these conversations tend to lead to more people on the path to leaving. Yeah. And I, and I don't think that, I don't think that goes both directions. So let me give you this for, for instance, um, lots of people every day are learning the messy, complicated history mm -hmm. and be of the LDS church and behavior of its leaders to the point where people lose their faith and they step away. I would say loyalty. You can lose your belief and still stay. It's when you lose your loyalty that really messes with you. Yeah. And, and feeling like your leaders don't have your best interest at heart. Well, they betrayed you, right? It's Correct. Relationship. But I don't think it goes the other direction. So the folks who leave, having discovered it wasn't true, very few, very few come back feel, feel reconciled by the the apologetic feel whatever. like feel like oh I, I i read more i investigated it deeper mormonism is true again i'm coming back not that it doesn't happen yeah but it's for every hundred who leave feeling like they learned that they were deceived maybe one tenth of a person comes back yeah and because no, that goes just one direction i think the defenders of the faith don't see as much value in the long form conversation of those kinds of podcast interviews. No, I could definitely see how you could see it that way. Um, I almost feel like you'd have to get into the intentions of the people that are maybe not having those conversations to really know the answer to that it doesn't feel like a charitable explanation. Uh, like, I don't know. I heard a uh, Terrell Givens on the comeback podcast. There's this new little podcast that popped up. And uh, I was hearing him explain whether he's going to talk to people who are considering leaving. And he just, he, he explained people have sometimes already made up their decision that they're going to leave. So what's the point of even talking to them? And I think there's some valid thing there. And it's like you said, we want to feel validated. So really what they want is to convince Terrell that the thing they did is right. And, and Terrell can't quite explain to them why he's staying because it's just whatever thing they have a problem with, he doesn't have a problem with and they can't make it his problem. And that is, so it's just not going to be a fruitful conversation. And that, that's fair to not have a conversation if that's the point, um, I guess is kind of, yeah. I, that, I don't makes, treat, that, that makes sense to me. I don't treat those conversations as if, the agenda is that I'm going to change, say, Terrell's mind. He's going to, or he's going to change mine. Rather, I think that when we talk well, out loud, he was he wasn't talking about talking to you or like. Oh no, no, sure. He was sure. talking about talking to an individual, an individual who, who's losing faith he, in the church and right. Seems like so this would have out. no public thing yeah. at all. He's just saying yeah. it's not even worth his time to talk to people who have already made their decision to leave. Yeah, and see, like, I just that's fair. And I disagree in that when when a believer who is informed sits down with someone who is either on their way out for sure or is out mm -hmm. and you have a conversation out loud 
you now put into uh, out into the universe, you put a conversation that is acknowledging all sides of this messy issue and you're poking holes in the logic of it. And the truth claims of any particular system or religion hinge on things adding up. And so I think when both sides have that conversation and both sides can think it's useless to talk to the other person, the reality is that there's 5,000 people or 10,000 people or 50,000 people who are listening to the conversation. So take, for instance, uh, my conversation with Jim Bennett. Jim is a believer. He seems adamant that he's going to stay in. He's got certain kinds of answers for these questions. Mm -hmm. I'm out. I I know the church isn't true. I've got my own paradigm. Neither one of us is going to convince the other. That's, That's crystal clear through all seven episodes, 14 hours of conversation. But what absolutely comes out of that is a whole uh, collection of people listening, a whole audience of folks who are watching or, or listening to the audio or the video. And they are impacted by these arguments being worked out in real time. So when John DeLynn interviewed Richard Bushman or Terrell Givens, there was a chance to like see Mormonism differently, see what parts held up, see where there were real complex problems that maybe didn't have good answers, see where the critic has a much stronger argument. And I think when people are allowed to work that out in real time by hearing two intelligent people from different perspectives do it in a long form conversation, I think there's room for people to be assisted into seeing the issues more clearly Mm -hmm. and it benefits them in making their future decisions. Yeah, that's true. And I hope I didn't take Terrell Givens. Like I didn't slaughter what he actually said on that podcast. Like I I may have like misrepresented what he said. Um, But it was something along those lines of like, I don't, I don't think I can, if their intention is that they want to stay, I can help them figure out a way to stay, but I can't help them. Yeah. They've already made up their mind to leave. Or, and, and if it wasn't that, that he said, I think it was along that spirit. Um, what if, but what if someone says my intention, again, we'll use Terrell as an example. My intention, Terrell, is to talk out loud with you about these issues for enough amount of time that you and I can walk out the logic of them and we can see if this really does hold up, if it really does hold up in a way that really functions. <laughs> I think, I think the reason, the best reason for staying is not, (laughs) I don't know how to explain this. I I said this at a, at an ex-Mormon get together and nobody liked it there. So probably nobody's going to like it here, but I'm going to say it anyway, because that's what I think. I I think the best argument for a a Latter-day Saint belief is, is probably, um, uh, the best response to someone like you is that that's not the point. So it really doesn't matter. All your logic, all of your whatever, it just doesn't, that's not the point. And, and they hated that. I'm sure you hate that. Uh, I get it. I understand the other side of it too. I'm not trying to like dismiss it. I really am not. And I, I don't think that people that say that are trying to dismiss it either. Um <laughs> I think, you know, we, we, you talk about the, the later stages of life, right? Um, going through your second half of life or whatever. I think you can come to the real, same realizations that you have during a collapse of belief and realize that all those things that you were worried about don't matter. And you realize the point of church is something a little more along the lines of the wisdom stuff. And then that being that the, that's the case 
you're probably going to have a different view on some of the legalistic stuff about the church too. And you're going to have a healthier way of believing. Like, I think that really does happen for people. Um, so I think you're, I think you're, I think you're right that some people, for them, that's not the point. Like they're there, not because it's truth claims are verifiable or true. Yeah. And I have no doubt that there is a whole host of people who, as they learn that things are not what they were told, it absolutely is the point and it matters to them. Right. And I don't need or want to, or am I working to convince anyone who doesn't care, literally doesn't care if the church is true or not. I'm simply trying to be a voice. What's that? You're right. There are people that are there that do care and it changes their mind and how they act and and they leave like me, like I am one of them. (laughs) So it does matter. (laughs) Right. And to you, you would say, I'm glad that somebody helped me see that this wasn't what it claimed to be because now I feel uh, I feel empowered to make new decisions with my life and I'm making them. Yes. Yeah. And that's the group I'm talking to. So the folks who listen that go like, I know the church is true. I don't care what Bill Real says. Great. Like, that's cool. I but guess, oh, go ahead. I, think there's, I think there's a case to be made that you don't need. <laughs> it was James Randi for me and Penn and Teller. <laughs> And Jordan Peterson that helped me come to the conclusion. Like, I think, I think when people are being honest with themselves, they realize what they realize and they don't necessarily need someone to hold their hand out. I I don't, I don't think people necessarily need that. Um, But it certainly, it maybe certainly is nice. It certainly is nice to not feel crazy because that if, if I got anything from this kind of content, it was not feeling crazy. Which is also why I kind of want to make help conservatives not feel crazy either, because I think we're like a minority of a minority. <laughs> when you only understand, uh, so in a in a structure where there are beliefs and there is opposition to those beliefs, if you're only exposed to the side of the argument that is in favor of what you believe. Mm-hmm. You you don't even know what you don't know. And it feels as though when people are given both sides of the story, that most people who take that, that quest seriously mm-hmm. seem to whatever, wherever they arrive out, they seem to have valued that someone gave them both sides of the story. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and I think, I think the critics are willing to stay in that arena. Again, it won't always be polite because me telling somebody in a conversation that I really adamantly disagree with the logic of their argument, they may see that as a conversation that's not kind and they may not want to be in it. Hmm. But I do think that two people who deeply disagree but are very informed allowed to walk the logic of that out. I I think there's no better conversation for people trying to figure out what's real, what's true, what's verifiable, what isn't. And then when you think of all the things that are attached to your beliefs, the things that were expected of you and places where you didn't really get a chance to be your happiest, healthiest self, 
I think often knowing both sides of the story becomes empowering in a hundred different ways. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I, I get it. I, I love I this pushback, by the way. Your, your questions are I, incredible. I understand. I get it. Cause I was there and I made the decision because I learned the information. Like it's not and you're what grateful I thought you I did. was. Well, it's certainly, um, certainly, but, uh, I don't know. I, uh, if I'm being perfectly honest, I, I don't, I don't think that, uh, I don't know how to word this. I mean, you go in a room of people that are outside of Utah and the the person that says, "Hey, I'm I'm a believing member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saint." They they are the underdog in the room, and uh, but I understand yeah. there's, in people's lives it doesn't feel that way, and so sometimes they feel like they need to not feel like they're crazy, and I and I get that too. Um, so but Mormonisms Mormons aren't uh, unique in that way, right? Like if if a again I'm not debating. It's going to sound like I'm making Mormonism absurd. I'm only stating that statistically the small minority of people believe it, right? Uh, well, so, like no, a flat like, earth. No, no, I, I really do. Like when you go outside of Utah and, and, and I think, I think Latter-day Saints recognize this. They know that they're peculiar and, and they're okay with it. Like, I don't think that offends anybody to say, Hey, you're, you, you raise eyebrows when you say what you actually believe. And they're like, yep. I think sometimes too, believers in any system start with an assumption that the non-believers are just less informed about yes. the, if they knew what I knew, then they would yes, believe for sure. In my everyone, experience, everyone is like that. I wouldn't say yeah. that it was even in the religious paradigm. I would no, say no, that just any system of group belief of anything. Yes. Well, any you know? belief, like yeah. if you knew what I knew, Bill, Real, of course you would believe what I believed. If you right. had my experiences and my DNA, you probably would. <laughs> right. And my only point being is that, I would caution anybody on the inside of any belief to also recognize that maybe the people outside actually know pieces of information that you don't know. Sure. So for instance, I taught at, uh, I taught a non-credit class for seniors at uh, the local university when I was in Ohio, Bowling Green State University, but it was their Firelands campus in Huron, mm -hmm. Ohio. And I taught uh, on two different semesters. It was uh, a two-day uh, thing on church history. Basically, it was like these seniors in the community wanted to learn new skills or learn new pieces of information. And I was offering a class on Mormon history and 50 people signed up. And it became crystal clear right away that the missionaries in that knew significantly less than the non-members who came to learn more about Mormonism. Oh, interesting. It was also true that some of the people knew more about Mormonism than even another older gentleman or two that came with me to observe it, who had been in the church all their life. What was the topic though? Cause I'm sure it was, it was, it was like all of church topic. history. So, so I started history. off with like topic. essentially the first vision and I worked myself up to the modern church. Okay. And then I did one on church history and it was like two hours long, hour and a half, and then a break and then another hour and a half or so. Okay. And then I came back the next week and taught on the doctrine of the church. Here's all the things that the church believes and the, and the stuff it holds. The informed comments by people in that 
in that class about Mountain Meadows Massacre, about uh, First Vision accounts. Like these non-members knew more about Mormonism than we believers generally give them credit for. I see. And so when somebody when somebody hasn't been a member of your faith and they're sharing with you that something doesn't feel right to them, instead of dismissing that, I'm simply saying that maybe they know things that you weren't allowed to know. Mm-hmm. And that because maybe information was skewed for you towards the correlated believing faithful narrative, maybe when a non-member or an ex-member says something to you, maybe at least give the benefit of the doubt and go, what's the truth of that? And, and what, and if that is true, what difference would that make? And why might it make a difference for them? Maybe it doesn't make a difference for me, but maybe it makes a difference for them that knowing again, Joseph Smith married a 14 year old, maybe that's significant enough for them that they couldn't buy into this. Sure. Like their argument is valid in their head and it's not because they're uninformed or ignorant or deficient but rather their brain legitimately tells them that this, all this information added up means there's just no way that this thing is what it claims. Mm-hmm. And we can do the same thing in reverse too, right? Like we can go like their life experience is different. Maybe their spiritual experiences really are or were more powerful than the ones I had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for going way longer. This was fun. Just, I hope, I hope some of this made sense. It felt like we were just wandering around. You'd ask good questions and I'm, I'm kind of playing in the philosophical realm of it. And I I hope people got something from it. No, I think it went good. Um, Appreciate it. It's been fun. I've been wanting to do this since I started the podcast, but uh, I just, once I got going, it's been really hard to, it's been really hard to like focus. I've asked probably like five people out there to do interviews and then never followed up. And they probably are like, what the heck? And now you're going to, now you're going to get back to them. Oh, I eventually will. Yeah. Um, hopefully. So if, the, if anybody's listening to this and they're one of them, sorry, it's coming maybe. And when you put this so. up, let me know. I'll, I'll engage with the folks. So folks who are listening, I mean, feel free to push back against anything I've said. Um, I welcome that and I'll, I'll watch when you release this and I'll try to engage those folks who are putting up comments, good and bad, you know, good pushing positively affirming what I've said or disagreeing with what I said. I'll, I'll engage that. And I'd welcome that conversation. I hope that we can talk about things in a way that we both can understand each other better, which I think is the goal of your podcast. And I think you're doing a great job of it. I do have future projects that I want to do and I'm sure you'll be willing. I'd like to just, like, for example, I'd rather be a mediator and let someone else, you know, present the faithful side or something, you know, yeah. or I would love to produce content like that. That's what I really, really craved a lot when I was going through my stuff. And I just, it, there wasn't a lot of it. I could find old stuff on John DeLynn's channel, um, but there, there wasn't current stuff. Love the RFM uh, Midnight Mormon debate. That was, that was the highlight of my experience so far. So if I could do more stuff like that. You you okay. like you like that format? No, I did not like that format. <laughs> yeah, See, but I, I liked that it happened. I was really proud of everyone. Yeah. Everyone, I was proud of everyone for not not letting it happen. So, yeah, my my only thing I would say to that is I think there are better ways to have more productive conversation, right? The, yeah, the debate for sure. format, but I I do think that if you can get people to do that, be a mediator. If you could be a mediator between. 
Radio Free Mormon and Terrell Givens or uh, Claudia Bushman. And what's that? That would be interesting, wouldn't it? And allow them to say things and you kind of hold it to some sort of do you not know what, get off track or something. I think what you're interested in is different than what I'm interested in. Um, like Probably. I know, I know the debate that you would like to see happen uh, or the conversation of the topics that would be yeah. brought up. Um, there's a part of, there's a big part of me that is just so uninterested in the, does God exist or God not exist? And, and, and yeah. all, when you get into the fine print of like uh, Joseph Smith, did he sleep with a 14 year old or didn't he like, or was it just a betrothal? Is that still any better? Like that, that debate is uninteresting to me at this point where I'm at. I understand that it is interesting to other people though. So maybe it'd be worth trying to do those kinds of creations, but uh, it sounds like you're more of wanting to get, you know, if you get two people who come out differently on the church, but figure out like what they value and, why yeah. they, why they feel things are important and can, why they can, live out the life the way they do. Yeah. Can you get to the point of understanding each other? I'm, I'm more interested in trying to understand each other than trying to. Yeah. Uh, and, and I just don't think you're going to find understanding in those things either because yeah. someone doesn't care or. Um, yeah. Yeah. See, I, I don't. I think if you can get understanding with each other, I think that's great. I have no, that's not my anti-goal, right? Like I right, I would right. like to see that happen. I think that it's a win-win when two people come to the table and take the time to really steel man each other's positions and understand why they made the choices they did. Mm-hmm. But my, my number one priority, and it has been for the entire decade I've done this, is to put out enough information that the people listening get to have uh, a way to make better informed decisions. Yeah. You don't think that stuff's already created or are you just afraid that it gets buried and then forgotten? Oh, yeah. I'm already finding that so much of what caught my eye 10 years ago isn't on the internet anymore. It doesn't exist. Those Mormon people still around because that was probably one of the most helpful for me. They are. But so many of these sites that carried this information, the person either dies or they stop paying for the URL name or whatever. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it's just a dead link. Interesting. And, and so I think these conversations do have to be hashed out over and over again. I, you know, the apologist says something like, hey, we've dealt with these before. Somebody's just throwing all these things against the wall. We've already answered all of these. Yes. And they have given answers to try to resolve all of them. And I think the problems are so in favor of the critic, at least in a large chunk of them, that it doesn't matter how many times you've offered a reconciliation, the reconciliation doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think these conversations have to be had over and over again. The Book of Abraham, I've heard that argument a thousand times. And I think when RFM and I sat down and did a three-part episode on the Book of Abraham, or when Robert Rittner comes on the scene and sits down with John DeLynn for eight hours or 10 hours, I think those conversations reach people in a way that whatever previous conversations didn't. Maybe. And so I do think it has to keep being said. Yeah. There's a part of me that wonders if, you know, if there was that Mormon think was just up there and that might be enough too. like, I'm, I'm not sure any convincing happened through watching content. I would think the, the thing that was solved is not feeling crazy though. That was solved. At, so. at some point the problems became overwhelming again, for me, overwhelming mm-hmm. that I 
I just knew that it didn't add up. Yeah. In my head. Yeah. Yep. That's why we're here. Being yeah. terrible apostates. Lazy well, learner. Like, I mean, you know, lazy learners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, it wasn't Where will we go? Enough. Where will you go? Um, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning and drink my coffee. <laughs> I'm going to work on producing more content. And I'm going to read or listen to something that enlightens my mind. And I'm going to connect with people that I care about and who care about me. Yeah. That's where I'm going. That sounds good. Well, thanks, Bill. Thanks for being on. And hopefully everyone enjoyed this really long episode. (laughs) Oops. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground. Awesome. Love it. Thank you. Yep. Thanks.